0: If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended... For adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco there's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the sunshine state or any other destination on your fishing bucket list book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless.
1: hunt the Meat Eater Podcast.
0: You can't predict anything. Okay, we're going we're gonna to do this in an unorthodox fashion. We're going to start with intros. I feel like the other day we were talking and never. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Um,. As though dealing cards with introductions. And then we got like a bunch of housekeeping issues, and I need to ask Michelle some questions. I need to get the female perspective on two things. Is that cool, Michelle?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yanni, you going to introduce yourself?
3: Good morning. I'm Giannis Fatalis from the Meat Eater crew.
4: Good morning. I'm Sam Lundgren from the Meat Eater crew. Joining it.
0: us for the first time. Yeah. It's the first day in the hour. office. <laughs> Excited to be here. Get your email hooked up yet?
4: I do. I do. And it's already full. So. Oh, I really enjoyed that brief twenty minutes before I had any sort of inbox. It was glorious. Yeah, because there's
0: no responsibilities yet. Yeah, yeah. I got like things, now I have work you have to do.
4: Right. Yeah, I finished my last job Friday at five, so had you do like two. Most weekend. people
0: game it so you get two weeks off.
4: Yeah. Well, uh, I gave you, I gave <clears throat> my last employer a month and a half notice, so I figured I better hustle on over here once I got done with that.
0: That speaks well to your work ethic, man. Oh, thanks. I appreciate that. The Michelle,
5: Michelle, Michelle Chandler from the Meat Eater Crew,
0: formerly Michelle Jorgensen. to Say who's Michelle Chandler? Right. Who is this? So you did the old switch, huh?
5: I did the switch. Yeah. No,
0: can you uh, real quick why? I mean, um, I'm all for it, man. But like, yeah, you know, as you know, I've I've complained about many times that my wife won't do it. She's, I, she's mean.
5: It's a, I think my perspective on it's a little old fashioned, but I kind of consider it. I think he's a great man and he's now an honorable talking. man and talking. I'm proud to take his name really? and yeah. And to be a part of his family. So I look at it in that, in that perspective, it's like a
6: validation
5: of
0: worthiness. His, yeah,
5: yeah, absolutely. So I'm, I'm really on board with it.
0: My wife just thinks it's annoying to go change all your stuff around.
5: It's not easy. They don't make it easy. You know, first stop social security and every other agency after that kind of
0: yeah. Mm-hmm. Passport.
5: Yeah, we did that the other day.
0: For a long time, she screwed with me by saying that when her passport expired, she would do it. <laughs> and then she like made this auto renew. So one of her many emails has uses my last name as like a little nod in my direction, mm-hmm. but no, she's not.
1: I'm not honorable, or I don't know what.
5: Well, yeah, we all um, have our own <laughs> viewpoint of it.
1: And Sean, hi, I'm Sean Garrity, and I'm a founder and managing director at American Prairie Reserve. All right, Ryan
0: Callahan. It's my second Monday here as part of the Meat Eater crew. You're doing good. We get a lot of emails about you already. I mean, we are has always have gotten a lot of emails about you, but we we get emails about you. People are curious. Do you have categories? No. No, just a lot of emails about you. People like hear hear you talk and they want to know more. Um real quick, Giannis, you were wrong about some stuff. Uh <laughs> L- Often the number case. of dudes wrote in. You were talking about if you were to hire a, if you were to hire a dude to pack out your elk. Mm-hmm. You were ballparking it like a horseman, a packer. No, that wasn't me ballparking it. Who ballparked it?
3: John Sh- Edwards from Schnees. He ballparked it. Yeah.
0: Well, he was off by a factor of couple hundred yeah i thought
4: he was on the light end even then when we were having the discussion you felt
0: it at the time i was shouting that at the radio when i was listening to
4: i was
5: like 500 that's a steal
0: yeah dude a lot of people wrote in they're like 500 750 probably more like it someone was throwing around 250
6: yeah depends on who you get man it's like Giannis calls me and he's got this picture of this giant bull on instagram yeah i'd be like you know what man this one's on me send me the coordinates
0: yeah, but you're not, a, you're not a packer for hire. You're just a dude, a guy. A
6: lot of packers for hire also have a hunting license in their pocket.
0: Oh, meaning like I would love to come up and give a hand.
6: Yes. No, I don't, <laughs> I don't agree at all.
0: I don't agree at all. Because then there's no guesswork. It's like, so this is where he was. This is I feel spot. like pro packers are. Tight-lipped? No, they're working.
3: You've made that decision. You're a working man during hunting season. If I was a pro packer.
0: And all I did was go up and visit places where people had had successful hunts. Mm -hmm. And then a buddy of mine said, hey, man, um, think about heading out this weekend. Got any? What what would you do if you were me? And I was the pro packer. Would I then say, oh, you know what? You know where I've pulled three or four bulls out of in the last week? Right? I don't know that that individual would really have the self-restraint to not just tell tell his buddies. Unless he's a real pro.
6: Well, the real pros get a real pro tip to keep that stuff under wraps. They're like, you know what? Really? Just probably also it. pricey. Here's a little something for you. Let's not talk about where this bowl came out of.
0: Guy wrote in about um, Santa Claus saying that with CWD and all the bands on captive ser- moving servants across straight state lines, he thinks that Santa Claus is like the mythology of Santa Claus. <laughs> He's going to come in looking like a great a- a-hole for uh, tracking these deer all over the whole earth. You follow what I'm saying? It's a cute point. It's cute. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, Michelle, two questions uh, from female perspective. One, did you feel that when we did the be- – like, you know the begging of- – like our episode begging and pleading right okay someone thought that it was i don't understand degrading to women
5: i did see that email yeah she was but why
0: can you help me with that
5: well first what i interpreted from that email was she was saying a you're assuming that your audience is all men predominantly men right that's not but i don't think that's true it's not true it's you know our our numbers
3: why was she saying we're assuming that I don't know.
5: <clears throat> I think she was saying, or saying that we're assuming um, that sales pitch should only be directed toward men, and that by um, pitching the, you know, you're going to learn how to cook and treat your sweetheart well with this fancy meal, that that's perhaps all women care about. I don't know. It. I I think she kind of missed the mark there. You do. Yeah.
0: Kelly, another one on you. Yep. A guy wrote in. We were talking about. I, I was talking one day about taking my daughter out and duck hunting and how her feet got cold and she was crying. And I, even though I had a, my wife made me, when we had a daughter, the minute my wife found out we were having a daughter, she made me vow to not treat our daughter any different than I would treat our boys when it comes to the outdoor pursuits. Mm -hmm. There's no, right, expectations are the same, pressures are the same. However, my daughter laying in the marsh crying struck me as fundamentally different than my boy laying in the marsh crying like it just hit me differently and a guy wrote in to say (laughs) this is very very anecdotal but a guy wrote in to talk about how he works these two guys and the guys are the same age they make the same amount of money very similar dudes uh they each have daughters one of them when they take the when he when he takes the girls out and they would cry he would give in and bring them back home the other one, when his daughters would cry, he'd make them tough it out, give them a tough talking to and make them stick it out. Fast forward a couple of decades or whatever amount of time, and the ones who got to go home when they were cold um, all became drug addicts and pole dancers, he was explaining. And the ones <laughs> who had to tough it out are uh, assets to our country. <laughs> <laughs> What, what, do you have anything i'm just telling you what a guy wrote right, right i'm right. telling you what a guy wrote and this is not nothing me nothing what do you when you hear that what do you feel
5: i think that that's funny i also think that that's one way of looking at it or <laughs> creating like an an upshot of a scenario, but I also think there's probably a lot of other factors at play there. No, that no can't be right. Can't be nuance <laughs> introduced. Um,
0: you don't think it all stems to what happens <laughs> in the like a child's development I, and pe- cor- course in life is all set in the dark marsh?
5: I You're wish it were. More, I more think life on. might be a little more <laughs> enjoyable and simple. But I do think that you know hard, difficult, challenging scenarios for kids are important, and you know, like they say, it builds character and. uh, I don't know. I, I think, I think it's okay.
0: All right, we'll touch back with you when you uh, have a bunch of parenting experience locked up. Right? No, up.
5: I'm definitely gonna be, you know, seeking you out for some advice.
0: Okay. Anything else anybody needs to bring up before we talk about American Prairie Reserve?
3: Speaking of kids being tough, I went skiing for the first day yesterday of the season with my kids, and my oldest skied all day with a base layer. And then her jacket just wide open. And it was 15, 20 degrees up there. No wind now. But I'm just like, for all the times when we go through stuff like that, when they're just like in the blind or in the boat or wherever, cold and like miserable. And I'm, I just want to be like, remember when you're up on the ski hill and you're just like, things are going, going your way. <laughs> wide open, the wind's blowing right through there. You're like, you don't give a shit. Like not even kind of cold. And I, I was chilly. I had two, three layers of wool on, plus a puffy jacket in my shell.
0: That's what makes it hard when they're crying and cold, is you can't tell if they're leveraging something.
3: Because
0: right. like, you want to be like, boring. I, that day I want to be like, I would love, I would pay any amount of money to feel what your toes feel like right now. <laughs> to know if this is going on or if this is like an avenue you're taking
5: yeah a little manipulation to get into the next activity
0: because i would be a, my daughter would not have a difficult time manipulating me my mm-hmm. boy i'm all over it but again as hard as you try it's like it's just different and i, I right. struggle with it being different oh one quick thing too so speaking of speaking of the the the, the episode that we dedicated to the meat eater fishing game cookbook recipes and techniques for every hunter and angler uh we had a thing happen where um reception of the book we we didn't we meaning our our publisher spiegel and grout random house like like we didn't anticipate the eager reception for that book i mean we did but i didn't know to what degree it would happen and we ran into a little problem where it's a good problem to have where the books were gone like a like a nice good print run of books were gone The morning of Pub Day, so there's a lot of frustration out there with people who are trying to go on BnN.com, Amazon.com, and they're seeing long lead times on book delivery. All you know, if you go into like make your order, the book will come. We are they're they're making more books. Everything's gonna be taken care of. I know it's a little bit frustrating. You still see stuff on our end. It's like promoting buying the book, even though there's a long lead time to get it going. But just trust. Bear with us. Um, the book will ship. It's just been it's been really exciting to see how fast um, the book went and how popular it's become. But it's uh, you know, it's like a little bit of a pain in there of having run out. So it's coming. More will ship, tons more are on the way. If you place your order, your order will be honored and you will get the book. Um, and in the future, too, we're gonna also through TheMeatEater.com, You can go into the store and, and eventually, not right now, but eventually we'll have we'll be selling uh, signed copies there as well. That's a ways out, but it'll come. Good? Okay, Sean, you ready? You ready? How how annoying is it? How annoying is it when talking about the American Prairie Reserve? How much <clears throat> do you hate it on a one to ten when people mention the Buffalo Commons? Is it totally different, or do you see that there's a continuum of thought? One being low, one is like, oh, that doesn't bother me at all. Ten is like, why would you bring that up? It has nothing to do with this.
1: I think I'd go for a negative two, really, because it's an exciting portal into talking about history and a trajectory of an idea over time. Oh, okay. And that helps people realize because you know when they, oftentimes they start off, it's a negative connotation of Buffalo Commons. And uh, you can actually connect dots to what I think is very positive for the public for this project.
0: I like, oh. I like the question. Okay, so then let's rate it out again. I'm going to give you another one to ten rate. All right. Your expertise in breaking down like Frank Popper, Mary Popper, the idea of the Buffalo Commons, what precipitated it, where are you at on that? Because I'll do it, but I'll do like a four. Uh, say it again. Like to tell the story of what the Buffalo, like that idea, right? The yep. sociologist Frank Popper, right? Right, and Deborah.
1: Is it Deborah, not Mary? Not Mary. That's a British woman in the Dick Van Dyke. Sorry, just go no, ahead. Mary po-
0: oh, yeah, Mary Poppins. <laughs> um, so, so you know it better. You know it better, than me. Do you want to tell the story?
1: Uh, well. Or I can do it and you can correct me where I miss? Briefly, you correct me. Okay. Um, well, very, very to. condensed. Yeah. Uh, that's all. I just want to get It's just Deborah, an interesting idea, right? Deborah and Frank, who actually keep in touch with us because oh, really? they're kind of watching this. Yeah, email a little bit. And uh, like this project, but they're, and what's important is they're, they're demographers from Rutgers University. They're just sociologists and they're interested in why do people move about, uh, with the, particularly within the United States, what causes people to move north to north, the south to north in the 1800s, what caused people to move out of the northeast down into the southwest and just why, why does that, how many people are moving when, what was the impetus, when did the impetus go away and they stopped moving, all that kind of stuff. So they just theorized, as they looked at patterns and themes, which sociologists should do, uh, what was going on in rural areas all over the world, actually, not just the U.S., but in rural areas, particularly where there's lots of agriculture. And what they noticed was, as agriculture, like any industry, uh, commercial fishing or logging or coal mining, whatever it is, over time, because of increased efficiencies, it needs less and less people to get the same amount of things done. So as people found themselves, hey, 10 years ago, I was part of a threshing crew or whatever it might have been. I was a cowboy, whatever it might have been. Uh, and we used to move the cows around and stay real close to them. Like now with the rest of rotation grazing, you don't need so many. You just, they kind of take care of themselves, whatever. But the need for people in ag down and down and down every decade. So where do they go? They go to the cities because that's where the jobs are. So what they noticed, the United States, no different over time, particularly 20s, 30s, and 40s, people were beginning to drift towards urban areas where there's more job choice and you can do right by your family economically. And they said, okay, what happens in the vacuum that's left behind? And there's going to be lots of ag being done there, but perhaps some of this would, on its own, without any projects like APR, revert back to more of the wildness that we heard from Kaplan and, bodmer and lewis and clark and people like that it may actually revert back and take over some areas of that and they said uh, even maybe it's the great buffalo will come back maybe not as many used to be but we have big buffalo herds and this is about a 20 page paper and page 18 that one thing there could be a buffalo commons out there and that ignited the whole thing oh yeah man people went nuts obviously but because so that's kind of that's kind of how that happened they said you guys we're just demographers we're just we're just saying a a potential theory we're not starting a project to go do it so
0: i think are you familiar with the writer bill kittredge yes uh his book hole in the sky he he, he um he, he he has you know a great many environmental concerns and and uh you know in his writing and writes from an environmental perspective his ranching background yeah um but he had tried to articulate why some why some people felt that uh why some people were insulted by by that idea and it would be that you had generations of people on a landscape who had dedicated their lives to say like making the desert bloom or or to building communities and creating an an economy and for someone to and, and not that the people who proposed the buffalo not that the demographers or sociologists who proposed the buffalo commons um they weren't making a value judgment so to speak they're just pointing out something that could eventually happen but people did some people celebrated the idea and it it was and it as kittredge explains it's like a little bit could be taken to be insulting by people whose families fathers grandfathers great-grandfathers had dedicated their lives to like making community and then for people to be uh enthusiastic about the idea of that going away mm-hmm. was an uneasy idea for
1: some people i think you're exactly right and the interesting thing is that happened not too long ago what was it was like 30 years ago that first paper came out <clears throat> maybe the longer but not much has changed as in terms of the phenomenon you just described they are he uh, deborah and frank touched a nerve when they wrote that innocuously they thought mm-hmm. but it was the the excitement, that like you said, of other people that, hey, this could be something to watch and be excited about. Yeah. More public access, better hunting, things like that. Wildness coming back. Um, people took offense, and its I think it's uh, justifiably human nature when something is going away that you cherish, that's precious to you. A, a lifestyle, and growing up in these towns and being proud of uh, small town sports and things like that, and you've watched it diminish since World War One in many places like in northeastern montana 10% per decade decline in population and then someone says this in the early 80s or whenever that came out you're primed to be highly offended because there's already an underlying sadness totally understandable it's yeah. a human thing these are not there's no bad actors in this situation understandable and someone puts a fine point on it and others start to into a rancher or a farmer pile on with enthusiasm
0: yeah And it hasn't changed. What is the American Prairie Reserve? We kind of miss that. In a real clean way, like, what is it?
1: (laughs) It's a project to create the largest wildlife reserve ever assembled in the continental United States. To be opened up for public access, for the public's enjoyment, with all the wildlife species that were there for roughly 11 to 12,000 years, up until about eighteen, until about 1890 or so. Um, put all that back, perhaps not in pure historic numbers, but a lot more than is there now, and create a lot of different ways for people to go out and enjoy it and save that phenomenon that I just described for three or 400 years into the future.
0: And doing this requires... The purchasing of privately owned land.
1: As a, as a small aspect of the, of the strategies that we're using, one unfortunate part of it is you have to buy the land. I say unfortunate because it's a horrendous lift to go find the money and then get the land deals done. And it's a really, really big project, but it's a small part of the overall thing, which is putting in the uh, visitor infrastructure, helping people understand how to move about without disrupting um, anything from lex to wildlife corridors to whatever else. How do we work with nature? and all that. There's a lot to be done, and uh, the uh, the land, private land assemblage, which is a key component to make this whole thing work, takes a, just an extraordinary amount of time and effort and stress. So, Well, yeah.
6: again, because you can have a roadblock of a relatively, a quarter section of land yeah. that is yeah. absolutely necessary to open up 100,000 right. acres of land, 240 well, I think that, blocking 100.
1: Oh, it happens all over the place. So... You know, the last two properties we got out there, you can see on the map, the two crow and the As people are now, the instant people here, we get uh, some part of a property, they'll say, can I go out on that? I'll say, yes, this way, this way, we've got to fix this bridge. We don't want you falling off the bridge. Wait until we fix this bridge across the Judas. But you can come in here, park here, walk right across our private land, access all this public land on top of the Big Sag or whatever. We get maps we hand out to people. You can download on Avenza Maps or whatever you want to use. Um, to show people how to move about and access every single piece of public land that's on there. And uh, so that's, I think, let me, I think some people, I'm just gonna guess, Steve, that people are interested in our technique and our strategy and all that. But some of it behind it is why a lot of us quit our day jobs to do this. My life was going just fine in my early 40s. A lot more lucrative than working for a nonprofit. I can tell you that. Yeah. Why would you do this? And this is really, really exciting uh, to be a part of. And I'll just speak personally. Don't look for the on the website. I'm not speaking holistically for APR right now. But to me, and I started thinking about this in 1999 when I met the WWF guys. That are going. How do you think we ought to go about this? And there's a lot of. It was a really interesting time. But I started. I started hunting with my dad, and probably first. me first rather than leaving me home. You're talking about your little kids. He probably finally acquiesced and let me go when I was seven or eight. So that'd be the mid-1960s in Montana. I grew up mostly in Great Falls. My dad had elk camps. He guided a good bit. He had elk camps in the high woods, then west of Augusta, the Sun River Canyon, across Gibson Lake, in that area, back behind Sawmill Flats and all that stuff in the 60s. But even coming out onto the flats around Haystack Butte, or we'd be down in the Dearborn uh, a lot for mule deer, come out here in this country for uh, pronghorn whenever he'd fortunate enough to get a tag. That's pretty exotic to come out to the northeastern Montana from Great Falls. Looks looked like the end of the earth, it felt like. But we would go to ranches, and he would have the name on a piece of paper. There's no electronics back then. Knock on the door, go in and sit down, have hot chocolate, and... Sit there for an hour and a half and talk with a rancher, and we would have access. And they'd say, Well, here's my private section. You go in there, please close the gate and go over here, and you can park in that corner, just climb right over the top of it, and you'll have all this public land. But you can, if you see something on the private, that's fine. How many tags you got? My dad, I got an A tag and a B tag. Okay. You know, we just, I watched this discussion from the time I was eight years old, lots and lots and lots of times, all over the state. Not too much in the Southwest, Dylan. We didn't really, honestly, didn't get down there. But uh, there was a way of operating at that time, and this sounds trite and too simple, but I hope this can be a part of bringing that back. I hope when people look at APR, they go, that's how it kind of used to be, but you don't even have to sit in the kitchen. Uh, You don't have to take that step. So if you go out to some prairie or various other areas, you can see exactly where you go. We took down the gates and we put in cattle guards. That eliminates a lot of problems. Uh, Put in cattle guards, and the idea of leaving gates open goes away. It's its It's at our expense. And we say, we want you to be able to find this. We have some warnings about getting stuck. Some of you know what gumbo is. We we lose a lot of people out there. They eventually get out. Nobody has been lost forever, but a lot of surprises, people who haven't seen gumbo before. But uh, I, if you look at just me personally, I'd like to take it back to how things were like 50 years ago. And it was better because I've been here. I've, I know this, I've been around hunting all, big game hunting all my life. And bird hunting is a part of culture in our family my mom hunted with her .rot six um it's uh things have changed and all this to me i was listening to your thing on public access you show i can't remember when it was but i listened to your show on public access yeah and uh people were you guys were getting into the details on corner hopping i just thought how dumb is it that we've gotten to this place that, you know, do you own the airspace above that corner? It just seems, can you use a pole vault? No. Uh, I guess people own the airspace. I don't, it's just, something's happened. And I, I'd like to just, I, I think it's become silly. And what I'd like is a three and a half, three, three and a half million acre area that's well taken care of. You don't wreck it. And a lot of yahoos running around on motorcycles and tearing it up. That people can go, this makes sense. We've, 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 we've rejected some of the silliness. It doesn't mean you can do anything you want because people wreck things quickly if there's not rules and parameters and sideboards. Anyway, just so I want you to know what's behind this. It's not a a wonky technical business thing. There's personal motivation behind it by me. And now we've got over 40 employees. Our new CEO, she's terrific, Allison Fox. It's put together a group of people that are really, really fired up about what I've just described.
0: So when are you... Like, is it fair to say that you're the architect, like the original architect of APR?
1: Um, architect would be a push, maybe general contractor. Okay. The I, guess, I guess explain, the yeah,
0: explain a, yeah. how the idea came about, and, yeah. if, and if you're real good, tie it into what we just talked about with the Buffalo Commons.
1: <laughs> if I'm real good. Help me <laughs> out, Michelle. Okay. Remind me if I space this out. Um The idea, if you had a number of historians here in the room, we would all probably argue about which decade it came about, but let's just get back in the relatively early 1800s after the French fur trappers from Hudson Bay had come out and started describing this incredible wildlife phenomenon that they saw 10, 15 years before Lewis and Clark got here. Lewis and Clark chronicled that because the president said, you shall write down every single thing you see. So inadvertently, we got these great journals particularly this 300-mile ride spot that we're seeing, we're working in that they didn't see anywhere on their 4,000-mile round trip, walking from St. Louis to the coast and back. But later on, other people came, too, and corroborated what was there. Uh, George Catlin, the painter, who's out probably 20 times in the 1930s and the 1940s, wrote some incredible books, but in the 1936. He said, every time I come out here, he didn't use these words, paraphrasing, blown away by the wildlife situation in this one particular spot about 300 miles wide south of, in in what we now call the Breaks region, the six county area. And he wrote back to Congress and said, we ought to save this beautiful thing as a nation's park. This is 40 years before the park service even got going. He said, this has got to be saved and it's going away. Beavers getting trapped out of here. There's hunters already happening. There's no cows at this time. There wasn't cows for another 20 years. Just Bison and all that. Well, Catlin kind of nailed it so first. Sorry, that was 18- 1840s. 30s. 1830s. Okay. Did, I say, did I say 1930s? Yeah. Sorry about that. Oh, I have, That
0: was the dark ages, man, 1930s. Yeah, exactly. 18,
1: yeah. 1830s, sorry about that. I'm um, getting used to my little uh, echo chamber here with my headset. Um, but afterwards, a lot of other people said the same thing. The Park Service came up in the night. Now, we had a, as you know, the Park Service got going in the 18, 1870s with Yellowstone and we had a golden era of building parks and I think if Catlin had still been alive he'd say well of course they're going to pick this this is going to fit fit in the suite of parks that people are imagining Roosevelt and everybody else but we had a pretty darn good run but our last one Grand Teton National Park we did in 1950 we haven't done anything big since we called a stop 70 years of nothing no more parks we did amazing things, Yosemite and Grand Canyon and Everglades. On they and like on
0: topography, on. man.
1: Well, topography, uh, aesthetics, mostly was about aesthetics. Yeah, yeah. And uh, for the most part, if you go back and take a look at it and uh, look at Ken Burns' you know, Greatest Idea films and things like that, pretty much was for views and getting people out in nature, but nature as through the uh, viewer, uh, aesthetic view. And they passed over the grasslands. So other people, particularly some FWP biologists, David Daniel Lichtman in, uh, in, uh, in uh, Colorado in the 90s said, gosh, we really blew it. We should make it someday. We should get rev this park idea back up and make some sort of protected area up um, here. The poppers didn't really go that far. We already talked about them. The guy who really probably nailed it, I think, who deserves the credit is a guy named Robert Scott, Bob Scott. He was a rare book dealer in Missoula, Montana, and he came up with, who knows what he came up with, the Big Open. Oh, okay. He did the Big Open. The Big Open was the first time he said, the Buffalo Commons was a demographic shift statement that was happening in the world. Rural people going to the cities and perhaps certain areas could, would be rewilded on their own. Bob Scott, in the early to mid-1980s, said there ought to be a protected area right here five million acres, two-thirds south of the river, a third north of the river. We'll call it the, we're going to call it the Big Open. That'll be the name of the, the thing, just like Big Bend National Park, but you can hunt in it. I'm going to bring everything back, full ecology. I've got his paper. It's like 30 pages long. He wrote it in the 80s. He was the first to totally nail it. And he went around and talked to college students all over the United States. He was a huge cult hero. Had a hard time starting any any uh, a business uh, to around it, and he got, more than can you imagine the blowback in the 80s timing is everything right so that was a big one nature conservancy you can say more about bob he's a great guy
0: but but back up to the big open a minute
1: yeah so he was
0: like like, can you set the, the, the the stage a little bit like set the table about what is up there where you have this the cmr you have large federally managed lands already in place right yeah
1: what we have up there well i think bob Rightly, uh, he's very astute, um, he said, "This is, the thing is, this can be affordable. One of the reasons we stopped making national parks is because it got extremely contentious, just really hard, and the park just, service just said, it wasn't because they were out of money. They are tired of being beat on. Like, this is not the highest and best use. And Grand Teton, it was a lot, to get that shoehorned in and then be done, that was rough. You know, the Snake River Land Company and all, how to get that in, it got to be very, very difficult and contentious. Because you're excluding so many activities. Excluding activities, uh, ranching, farming, everything else, excluding commerce. And in uh, our, our society, you know, or uh, capitalism, uh, it better be able to make money some way, or it's going to have an awful, uh, amazing intrinsic value that's really clear to everyone that we back away and not want to make money on that piece of land. So, yeah, it got difficult. But he said, How about this? 80% of it's already there because we have BOM land, we have state sections, we have 1.1 million acres of the CMR. Native Americans, both Belknap <clears throat> and Fort Peck Reservation, will be into this. And he's, all the puzzle pieces are there. You only have to get a little bit of private land, glue it all together, airbrush it, bring the animals back, not mammoths and mastodons and short faced bears, et cetera, but the stuff that was there just 150 years ago before it was eradicated. We're so close. We're so close. And that's what he crystallized.
0: When he talked about the big open, how did he have a square mileage idea of what would be like an adequate size 5 million grasslands park
1: he's he kept he often said 5 million acres
0: and for for context what's yellowstone 2.1
1: 2.2 okay
0: so to make a to 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 make a patchwork of federally managed lands state lands reservation lands and then private purchase lands you would make something twice as big as a, a, a grassland I don't want to call it a park, but a, wh- what's the good word?
1: Honestly, Bob, if he somehow hears this podcast down the road, he may write an email and say Sean was slightly off or really off. But it's probably the closest model we have out there is the Blackfoot Challenge uh, over by Elvando is what he's shooting for. He was assuming ranchers would stay there. Okay. And he was assuming they would, allow, they would allow hunting on their properties. But what he was trying to get them to do is tolerate, by an order of magnitude, more wildlife out there use less fences, bring the idea of cowboys back, push your cattle around, bison go that way, prong go that way, elk go that way. You got your, you move your cows around kind of deal. Yeah. So managing uh, fenceless cattle operations in the midst of wildlife abundance. I think it was very much uh, Blackfoot challenge oriented. So Bob, please write in, correct me on that. But I think, so that's the model, not a park, Mm -hmm. Uh, not no hunting. Uh, Definitely he was big into access. It's pretty you know it's very very interesting uh surprisingly how close um to what uh to what we're doing
0: what happened then are you comfortable with how
1: we're walking through this yeah you don't mind no it's great okay so it's what, cold outside it's warm in here i'm
0: good <laughs> so what was the what was the next like if we imagine that this is like a continue there's some sort of continuum yeah. of
1: inspirational thought mm-hmm. right Two more steps, really important ones. And all the way along, I think what I want to make sure is people feel like there's a lot of credit to pass around. This is like a rugby game. The ball's been going down through the ages, and people working hard, trying to crystallize and trying to change hearts and minds to see how this can work. So from Catlin to Lick to, uh, to the um, – I'm going to skip over the because I don't think the Poppers are trying to push anything. They're just making a statement. Yeah. But Bob Scott, re- yeah. Bob Scott was pushing hard, and the we- two – go
0: ahead it's in the, the poppers is interesting to me because that wasn't i, I remember i, I would have been too young to remember when it was proposed but that was right. the the first idea i heard about this and it was like a really just interesting concept so i i bring it up because in my understanding of that landscape and in this story that was my point of entry so well
1: i, I I think you're right to see it's not only did you intersect time and you're old enough to have consciousness to see it but it's also they were trying to say guys this is a trend and I spent I spent more time in for-profit business than I have a nonprofit business and trends I want to talk about that later if we can put yeah. something in the queue is what trend it's really important to take a look at long long-term trends and that's all they're trying to say is guys here's a trend that we see because we think about it every day and we just want to put it out there that it's happening in Brazil, all over the world, and it's happening here. So you might want to think about it. That was their point of view. Uh, now, if you're going to get mad at somebody, get mad at Bob Scott, or me, or Nature Conservancy, or WF, because we're really talking about doing something. So the next really important Nature Conservancy of Montana deserve a lot of credit for crystallizing the, moving forward in the early 90s and mid-1990s. They took a look at, well, if you were, if if... By chance, anybody was to try to fire up this not the park service idea after Teton, but try to save a big space. I mean, really go for it with guts. Try to save a big space. Where in the Northern Great Plains, all five states and two provinces of Canada, We're in this Northern Great Plains? It's a bioregion. region. I mean, it's a it's a it's an ecoregion, they call it. Uh, where would be the best spots to really really go big? And they did. They identified ten. Thunder Basin and uh, places in South Dakota. Where's Thunder Basin? Uh. Now, my buddy from WWF is going to kill me. Uh, Thunder Basin is in Southern Colorado. Is that right? South Dakota. I'm not familiar. Yeah. Look it up, Yanni. Yanni's <laughs> going to look it up. And I, I, my buddies from WWF are just cringing right now because I don't know where it is because yeah, I haven't right. been there. But anyway, the, uh, uh, and they wrote a seminal article on, if you were to do it, here's 10 spots, top ranked. If someone was going to do it, we're not saying we're going to do it. And so they, that got World Wildlife fun a cast of characters, uh, probably eight or nine really innovative thinkers inside WWF, uh, this WWF-US, not out of Switzerland. And they took a look at, dang, this is amazing. Let's take the ball again and run with it. And how can we, how can we get something going that actually someone, light the fuse on this, just get someone to consider doing it? As they looked at the 10, uh, this area in Montana came up probably in the top two or three for a variety of reasons. So much public land is already there. So hopefully this is a, this is a misjudgment, but people can't possibly howl about it because eighty percent of it's public land. It's the public's land. We're it over to the public, taking down keep out signs and fences and more wildlife. What's not to like? Turned out there was plenty <laughs> that I learned um, the public uh, can be upset about. Um, so it's it's affordable. That's really really important. Trying to buy all this land would cost you maybe. I don't know, $20 billion to do if you had to buy it all private, right? But because you don't have to buy it all or hardly buy anything at all to make the model work, it's affordable. Really important from TNC to their credit in WWFs <clears throat> is the amount of intact grassland that has not yet been plowed. It's been there for thousands of years. Looks like it did all the way back to the Wisconsin Glacier, right? And uh, then the wildlife history. So in some of those other places, big, uh, yes, they're cheap, Um, uh, Yes, the land's intact, but there's no record of them having the um, the population numbers and the diversity of wildlife that all those people I mentioned earlier saw. Even though they didn't meet each other, they all reported the same thing. This is just unbelievable cornucopia of wildlife here—from grassland birds, waterfowl, you know, the ungulates, the predators, everything. So, yeah, because
0: so they had an open grassland environment that had um, a history. Yeah, so you had... Unique history. Bison, elk, mule deer, white-tailed deer, grizzly bears, wolves, coyotes, badgers. Yep.
1: All the grassland birds, everything. It was just... We can talk... We could take a whole podcast. Why was that as compared to the other 10 areas? How come there wasn't that kind of stuff that you'd see in the Sandhills in Nebraska or up in Saskatchewan or Calgary? How come it wasn't... just didn't have that kind of concentration, but that's for another time. But it did, so... I think, and then what happened was, uh, and we'll keep this short, but World Wildlife Fund was uh, struggling to figure out a model because there are no models to to copy anywhere in the world. Blackfoot challenges something like it a little bit, but the landowners stay and the fences stay up and the public a lot is not allowed onto their property. So the grizzly bears can move up and down the Yellowstone to Yukon Corridor, but you're not able to move as freely as that bear is because you're crossing private property. The added thing with our model was it would be open to the public, and we'd take down science and take down fences and invite people out to enjoy this, and that's where we're a little bit different than what was happening uh, over there. So, um, uh, wide open, and the public owns this land. We're actually going to count the private land as accessible, too. We want you to be able to walk across it and not get locked out and have the donut holes and corner hop and all that stuff that you guys are familiar with so
6: so when you hit on corner hop i think it'd just be helpful for everybody listening if if you kind of just to jump back say like if you had to buy all of it it would cost 20 billion Mm -hmm. so like the the grid system out here the jeffersonian grid system right um we have private sections um that can basically open up the access to public sections um and so just like quick and dirty, you guys, I, I think, basically, you have like a third deeded.
1: And uh, if, wait, if 100,
6: some, th- roughly 100,000 deeded, roughly 300,000 that you count as part of the yeah. APR.
1: Yeah. And that's how the ra- ratio is going so far. It's a good question. People are going to uh, be lost right now. Yeah. I
0: think what's important is. go, go Now that you did that, you better, you better do it. <laughs>
6: I guess if, Je- if the you're Jeffersonian you're like well, what do
0: you mean <laughs>
6: checkerboard if, if you had to buy all of it so then you're saying we didn't have to buy all of it and that that is the the deal you have this checkerboarded landscape where there's public land that can be blocked by private land so um, you can have two sections of um BLM or uh, state land um that you cannot get to because you have a section or two sections of private ground. Um, So you buy the private ground, and you essentially have two extra sections of land because that public land, the private ground was the gateway to the public land.
0: Yeah. I'm cool. Is that helpful? Yeah, the Jeffersonian part would be when they were parceling out and handing out chunks of land, they would often create a pattern of federally owned or state owned and privately owned land that resembled when looking at the grid work that resembled a checkerboard where things are joined up corner to corner sections of land joined up corner to corner so you didn't wind up with big contiguous pieces of ownership in some areas nice
6: tidy squares um typically spurring off railroad
0: lines so that's cool i'm happier okay (laughs) But I, I feel like we're missing something right now. Like a thing I want to touch on. Um, what is... I feel like we haven't done this yet. Like what is the APR? What is the American Prairie Reserve? We kind of missed that. In a
1: real clean way, like what is it? <laughs> it's a project to create the largest wildlife reserve ever assembled in the continental United States to be opened up for public access for the public's enjoyment with all the wildlife species that were there for roughly 11 to 12,000 years up until about, 18, until about 1890 or so. Um, put all that back perhaps not in pure historic numbers but a lot more than is there now. And create a lot of different ways for people to go out and enjoy it and save that phenomenon that I just described for three or four hundred years into the future.
0: And doing this requires the purchasing of privately owned land.
1: As a, as a small aspect of the, of the strategies that we're using, one unfortunate Part of it is you have to buy the land. I say unfortunate because it's a horrendous lift to go find the money and then get the land deals done. And it's a really, really big project, but it's a small part of the overall thing, which is putting in the uh, visitor infrastructure, helping people understand how to move about without disrupting um, anything from lex to wildlife corridors to whatever else. How do we work with nature? and all that. There's a lot to be done and uh, the, uh, the land, private land assemblage, which is a key component to make this whole thing work, takes a, just an extraordinary amount of time and effort and stress. So, yeah. Well,
6: again, because you can have a roadblock of a relatively, a quarter section of land yeah. that is yeah. absolutely necessary to open up 100,000 right. acres of land.
1: 240 well, I think
6: that, blocking 100.
1: Oh, it happens all over the place. So... You know, the last two properties we got out there, you can see on the map, the two crow and the As people are now, the instant people here, we get uh, some part of a property, they'll say, can I go out on that? I'll say, yes, this way, this way, we've got to fix this bridge. We don't want you falling off the bridge. Wait until we fix this bridge across the Judas. But you can come in here, park here, go right across our private land, access all this public land on top of the Big Sag or whatever. We get maps we hand out to people. You can download on Avenza Maps or whatever you want to use. Um, to show people how to move about and access every single piece of public land that 's on there, and uh, so that 's i think let me I think some people i 'm just going to guess Steve that people are interested in our technique and our strategy and all that, but some of it behind it is why a lot of us quit our day jobs to do this. my life was going just fine in my early forties. A lot more lucrative than working for a nonprofit, I can tell you that. Yeah. Why would you do this? And this is really, really exciting uh, to be a part of, and I'll just speak personally. Don't look for the, on the website. I'm not speaking holistically for APR right now. But to me, and I started thinking about this in 1999 when I met the WWF guys that are going, how do you think we ought to go about this? And there's a lot of, it was a really interesting time. But I started, I started hunting with my dad and probably first me first rather than leaving me home you're talking about your little kids he probably finally acquiesced and let me go when i was seven or eight so that'd be the mid 1960s in montana i grew up mostly in great falls my dad had elk camps he guided a good bit he had elk camps in the high woods then west of augusta in sun river canyon across gibson lake in that area back behind Sawmill flats and all that stuff in the 60s but even coming out onto the flats around Haystack Butte, or we'd be down in the Dearborn uh, a lot for mule deer, come out here in this country for uh, pronghorn whenever he'd fortunate enough to get a tag. That's pretty exotic to come out to the northeastern Montana from Great Falls. It looked like the end of the earth, it felt like. But we would go to ranches, and he would have the name on a piece of paper. There's no electronics back then. Knock on the door, go in and sit down, have hot chocolate, and... Sit there for an hour and a half and talk with a rancher, and we would have access. And they'd say, Well, here's my private section. You go in there, please close the gate and go over here, and you can park in that corner, just climb right over the top of it, and you'll have all this public land. But you can, if you see something on the private, that's fine. How many tags you got? My dad, I got an A tag and a B tag. Okay. You know, we just, I watched this discussion from the time I was eight years old, lots and lots and lots of times, all over the state. Not too much in the Southwest, Dylan. We didn't really, honestly, didn't get down there. But uh, there was a way of operating at that time, and this sounds trite and too simple, but I hope this can be a part of bringing that back. I hope when people look at APR, they go, that's how it kind of used to be, but you don't even have to sit in the kitchen. Uh, You don't have to take that step. So if you go out to some prairie or various other areas, you can see exactly where you go. We took down the gates and we put in cattle guards. That eliminates a lot of problems. Uh, Put in cattle guards, and the idea of leaving gates open goes away. It's 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 at our expense, and we say, we want you to be able to find this. We have some warnings about getting stuck. Some of you know what gumbo is. We we lose a lot of people out there. They eventually get out. Nobody's been lost forever, but a lot of surprises, people who haven't seen gumbo before. But uh, I, if you look at just me personally, I'd like to take it back to how things were like 50 years ago. And it was better because I've been here, I've, I know this, I've been around hunting all, big game hunting all my life bird hunting is a part of culture in our family my mom hunted with her .rot six um it's uh things have changed and all this to me i was listening to your thing on public access you show, i can't remember when it was but i listened to your show on public access yeah and uh people were, you guys were getting into the details on corner hopping i just thought how dumb is it that we've gotten to this place that, you know, do you own the airspace above that corner? It just seems, can you use a pole vault? No. Uh, I guess people own the airspace. I don't, it's just, something's happened, and I, I'd like to just, I, I think it's become silly. And what I'd like is a three and a half, three, three and a half million acre area that's well taken care of, you don't wreck it, and a lot of yahoos running around on motorcycles and tearing it up, that people can go, this makes sense. We've we've We've, we've rejected some of the silliness. Doesn't mean you can do anything you want, because people wreck things quickly if there's not rules and parameters and sideboards. Anyway, just so I want you to know what's behind this. It's not a, it's not a wonky technical business thing. There's personal motivation behind it by me, and now we've got over forty employees. Our new CEO, she's terrific, Allison Fox, has put together a group of people that are really really fired up about what I'm I've just described. How
0: is the how is the money? how, how do you guys raise money to buy the lands? that you've bought and how many uh, and how many acres does the American prairie reserve own now
1: mm-hmm. uh i should have a lifeline to call back to the office but i think we're 92,000 private acres okay um and owned is a squishy owns just like if you have half houses you own some of it and the bank owns other parts of it I got so you. But we own better than 60% of all that land you see on the map free and clear. So we manage a balance sheet very, very carefully. And, but, yeah, those are our private acres. Um, I think all told, we're a little over 400,000 acres with state sections, as you were describing, and BLM sections.
0: Hey, you know when you take uh, some time to clean out, uh, let's say, like clean out your garage, and you're like, man, how was I living like that with that place such a mess? Well, check this out. If you've been paying a fortune for wireless and then you switch over to Mint Mobile and get plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you'll be saying, how was I ever affording to do that way I did it before? It's time to switch okay, to Mint Mobile and get unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To so get this new customer offer and get your new 3-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com/meat eater. That's mintmobile.com/meat eater and you'll cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month. Again, mintmobile.com/meat eater. It's a $45 upfront payment required, which is the equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Man, I'm just coming back uh, not too long ago from youth turkey season in Wisconsin. Now, last year at youth turkey season, it rained and snowed the whole time. This year at youth turkey season, Liquidiv.com, and you use code MEATEATER at checkout. That's 20% off your first order when you shop Better Hydration today using promo code MEATEATER at liquidiv.com. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from ButcherBox. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. You'll get exclusive deals as a member too. Sign up at butcherbox.com/meat eater and get our special deal. Butcherbox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional twenty dollars off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free, and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com/meat eater. Make sure you use code meat eater to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order.
1: The way we get the money, uh, I say unfortunately because it's hard, is just pure fundraising. Yeah, It's asking people, describing to people in various ways, sometimes using social media, sometimes on our website, sometimes flying all over the place and sitting down one-on-one. If you can finally get a dinner with them or something, say, this is what I'm doing. We'd like to take this next step. Would you like to help us take this next step? People 100 years from now really appreciate the action you might take here mm-hmm. because of this. And if they like it, they don't always. But if they like it, they'll say, well, I'm not going to give you money right now, but keep me informed. Maybe in a couple of years, I'm kind of tied up right now with some other commitments. So you go back over and over and over and over again. The biggest mis- miscalculation I made leaving for-profit business, uh, my own old, old company is still running. It's been around about 35 years it's in Silicon Valley. Uh, I had no idea how hard fundraising was going to be. I thought, it's like sales, you know? You just you, you do it for a while when you're small and you finally get the sales team and you get a, a VP of sales and you're good. Then you don't have to be do it. It's not like that. It's unbelievably di- difficult and particularly in a very crowded fundraising environment in the world. And if you take a look at what people give to philanthropically, they give to their churches, they give to their alma maters, they give to the arts, and way, 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 way down below, you've seen these, these top-ranked lists. Is conservation it's like a sliver within that sliver a lot of competition a lot of sharp elbows you got to move it and non-stop you can hardly stop for a breath i've been doing it for 17 years
0: do you do you primarily draw small donations from private individuals or do you primarily draw like large donations from extraordinarily wealthy people
1: we do everything our strategy on fundraising is everybody go long so we've got a huge team that focuses on this because, uh, unfortunately, you got to buy land, it's expensive. The way it works right now is we get money from all 50 states in the United States and 10 different countries around the world. If you put that in a top rank, the most people donating to American Prairie Reserve are Montanans, and then a descending order down to there. I can't tell you all 50 how it actually stack up, but I can send it to you if you want to put it on your website or something. Different Some people... um, uh are what you call sustaining donors they let us hit their credit card for five bucks a month we love those people lots of those people adds up to a lot of keeping this project moving so that's the big one that's the real, that's the big thing we're trying to grow and there's some thousands of people in that arena But to buy these properties, you also do have to have in your portfolio uh, a certain number of bigger donors. So there's 40 or 50 people out there that can give, that we have to travel a lot to see. Some are in Montana, most unfortunately are not. So even to have a cup of coffee is a plane ride, uh, expensive and difficult, time-consuming. But uh, they will uh, sometimes give us enough to get, you know, with a few other people. Enough to uh, take a run at a particular medium-sized piece of property or something like that. So it's everybody and every, everything, Steve, It's the, across the gamut.
0: Have you guys had pieces of land that would fall within the area you're trying to do this, come up for sale, but you weren't in a position to to try to make a play on it? Or are you usually able to, when something comes up for sale, to get in there and try to be a purchaser?
1: Uh, the only time that was not the case were things... Uh, there's a short anomaly, and that was in the tech crash, couldn't have been a dumber time to start this project in 2001 because the tech crash tech crash happened in 2002 anybody i knew had money they didn't have any money anymore it's pretty bleak that was the only time for about a three-year run when there was not property out there that we would like to buy since then since i'd say about 2006 if and i've been around every property we've deal deal we've done we've done 29 of them so far Any snapshot in time on that whole continuum until this morning, and this morning is still true, there's far more property for sale on this map than we can afford to buy. Okay. So there's like six, and more than half of those people have called us and said, before we go on the multiple listings, would you like to do it? Um, Because you know, with the rumor mill, they know how we operate, fair price, all that kind of stuff. We perform well. It's frustrating, because we don't have the money to buy all six at once. That's always the case. It used to be like there was two. And there's like four, probably about five or six years ago now, there's probably five, six, seven properties. Any given time, any morning, I can come in and see which ones are there. It's just a matter of, you know, you do something like the P.N. of the two crow, and you got to, that's a rabbit going through the snake, and you got to get that digested before you can go eat some more rabbits, right? That's a bad analogy, but it's uh, it makes us uh, it makes us feel it's hard to you can't move. You just go, wow, I'd love to be able to do this. And what happens is we eventually we lose those to other buyers. Yeah, generally someone will buy it and plow it up for farming, uh, or um, another reason we lose properties actually is we're in a we're in a bit of a bind that other people don't have to deal with. We're a nonprofit. We're audited every year, so kind of looks like this room. People I've never seen before come into the table, open up their laptops, except they have white shirts and ties on, and they're the auditors. And they audit every move we make, and they tear our books apart, and they see where we got our money, how we spent it, and all that kind of stuff. One thing you got to do as a nonprofit is spend your donor money uh, responsibly. So if we're paying out of fair market value, that range, they'll soon go, why are you doing that? You're just throwing money around. That's not responsible. And you can get a bad rank. You can lose your status as a nonprofit. You're done. You can become a for-profit, but you can't be a nonprofit by doing that. So we have to work within a range. If we have more time in other podcasts, I just show you a map of where property that I just would have loved to have had up on 191 by Fort Belknap. Uh and we did have the money to to do it we thought in the range, for instance. We get to the very top of the range. We call up and say we'd like to get this offer before somebody else gets this, and they go, "I'm not even going to put that in front of the owner. We already have two offers well above that." And we back off, and they're bought by local ranchers. They're not by Californians to buy, build a ten thousand square foot house. We just lost one uh, south of the tucrow actually down uh, by Winnet. It was really, really perfect for us. Three ranchers bought it, and they paid more than we were willing to pay. So I got story after story of that. There's a lot of painful ones that we would have loved to have had it, some up and around Malta. When a, a state legislature beat us out one day on a phone call, an auction. We got to the top of what we think we could justify, and we had to back off. And he, and he bought it for more than far more than we were willing to pay. So that happens. There's a misnomer out there that we can pay anything, and we're driving up prices. Absolutely not. Completely false.
0: How often do you run into a situation where a landowner um just doesn't want to sell it to you because they have an emotional connection to it being a a working cattle ranch that fits their definition of what that looks like and that they're adversarial to the idea that their sort of legacy and work on the land would be upended and they don't want to
1: sell it to you yeah less than five percent of the time but it does happen how is it articulated to you when that does happen Mm, I don't want to take the flack from my neighbors that I sold to the APR um a funny thing though it does happen where someone will say i'll sell it to somebody else if they sell it to you that's not my fault
2: yeah
6: yeah now but the truth is you guys are technically running cattle right um you you have uh properties that have um uh leases or uh, BLM in order to keep certain BLM leases, right? You got to have some a working component to it.
1: Um, yeah, for the most part, you need to keep some grazing animal on there to maintain your uh, allotments that are associated with your base property. Uh, you can rest it. The BLM allows you rest for two years, three years, and you can ask for another extension or whatever. But um, yeah, we do lease, and I'm get these numbers wrong. I'm going to throw out where we got somewhere between 4,000 and 5,000 cows on our property right now. Most of the property you are looking at is, is, is leased out. Um, part of that's a business decision. Uh, this is a very expensive project. Leasing it out is you, you rent it until we can get there with our model um, to have bison and other things. Uh, we lease it out, and that helps our overhead costs. And some leases are three years. Uh, there's some out there. This a big one over in Valley County, that was a 12-year lease they have about 4,000 yearlings on that, something like that.
0: So, and that's, I just want to clarify that situation where it's land that you own Mm -hmm. and you're allowing a local cattle operator to graze cow-calf pairs or whatever, to graze cattle on your land. Correct. Yeah.
6: And are you guys doing some, uh, you know, like trying out some different practices as part of that lease Um, as far as, uh, do you guys write like a grazing management plan or... Anything
1: like that right now? Very specifically, uh, we do. And we call it the Frazy Scale uh, for grassland management. And it has nine points on it. How we want to see riparian areas look. Uh, how big we want patch sizes. Like we don't want too small fencing pens. Uh, total amount of fence for wild, easy wildlife movement. So a big priority for us is uh, American Prairie Reserve is trying to maximize for biodiversity not for livestock poundage offtake. We're happy to deal with livestock producers, but they've re- got to realize our number one thing is we're optimizing for nature and biodiversity. So we'll say, if you want to lease on our place, and not everybody does, but most people look at it and think, okay, that's not so bad, I've changed a little bit. A lot of times we'll ask them to have a lower stocking rate than they would like to have, take it right to the wall, maximum they can have. Lower stocking rate, you know, it's too easy to say, but kind of the take half, leave half idea. Uh, leave half for wildlife, for the forbs and the grasses and things, for pronghorn and everything else. So lighter touch on the ground with a few less cows than you might like, so you got to accept that. Uh, uh, sometimes fencing out riparian areas, um, being okay with some fire now and again. Um having some uh, natural uh, uh, watercourse things like less use of spreader dikes or no use of spreader dikes and being okay with beaver dams and things like that so there's these these sorts of things uh they're not draconian or particularly arduous and we'll show them how to do it and we give them time to get there mm-hmm. but if you don't want to do it um uh within our uh way of operating then yeah maybe we're not a good match right so far we haven't any trouble trouble leasing out we don't have anything empty we generally get six seven eight phone calls like that
6: and is this a program um are you guys saying that this is going to get phased out over time or is do you think long term you're going to have um you know some chunks that are going to have some grazing long term or domestic cattle grazing long term
1: no it's a good point so i think um One way to look at this is we're thinking about our our idea is down the road. And Allie Fox, who's a lot younger than me, will much more likely see this end end situation. you have what we might call a a core reserve area, right? And that is going to be a very uh, amoeba-like circuitous uh, border. The days are over of drawing a square on the map like Yellowstone Park. The only way it's defined is who, who will sell to us. We have no control over who sells to us. But eventually have this core area that might be between three million acres, three and a quarter million acres, something like that, and in a six-county general area, north and south of the breaks, uh, north and south of the CMR, et cetera. Outside of that, is a boundary or uh, you see the next if you think about another area outside of it maybe like you think about fishing 200 miles offshore go quite a few miles whatever it might be 40 miles around that whole thing uh, a band around that is a is a uh, uh, is all cattle frankly i don't know what's going to be there we don't have any control i can't tell you what four or five hundred years from now but probably the next hundred years it's going to be a very robust cattle industry there and then even beyond that, we believe there are wildlife areas that our uh, Secretary of Interior is now talking about corridors between us and the Rocky Mountain Front and corridors down to the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, where elk and other critters can move back and forth. So you saw this. Somebody around here is knowledgeable about which house bill that was, but that Zinke just put out and said, I want to take a look at these corridors, wildlife corridors between areas. We've got to start thinking about how do we make those sociologically softened so critters can move back and forth in these things. So three things, there's a core, there's an immediate surrounding area, maybe 30 or 40 miles thick. And then there's also this corridor idea that's going to these two other big ecosystems. We consider this a huge ecosystem of about 8 million acres. That's where water drains into the milk or drains into the Missouri. So in the core, to your question, eventually over time, we will uh those those properties right now are staged with cattle on them. Over time, what's happened on White Rock, on Dry Fork, on Sun Prairie, on Sun Prairie North, we'll turn those cattle off and we'll turn bison on to them as the grazer, as the legal grazer. Because you have to have a grazer. Llamas, sheep, goats, horses, cows, bison. You gotta have something in there or you'll lose your allotments. I imagine that like you you talked about your, your personal interest in this and you
0: grew up hunting. Um I imagine that a good majority of the donors that are really paying high, high dollar amounts to you guys are probably deeply suspicious or adversarial to hunting would be my guess. Like I know that you have a lot of interest from like National Geographic Society, right? And they're like very antagonistic to hunters. Like what, what um, how, do you, how do you weigh that out? Like do, do they know, do you talk about that you have an interest in hunting? And, and I know that hunters go on there now. But I imagine that the long plan wouldn't be that, right? They probably don't like that idea. Donors.
1: There are one uh, that the majority, that's not correct. Uh, I don't know, I'm asking. That would make our my life even harder to get this thing done. It'd be very difficult, that philosophical divide. Mm-hmm. So I'd say there are some. As far as people who are squeamish about it or queasy about it, I don't know, 20%. It's somewhere between 15 and 20%, I would say, something like that. And where, the, where you knock that down to about 3% that don't want to hear it, I'll say, you know, people have been out there for 11,000 years hunting animals. People have been a part of the landscape. First it was thrusting spears, later got the idea of atlatls, later at the, got the idea of archery. Yeah, that number's sitting at about 15,000 right now for the fashionable. Keeps going. So
0: <laughs> I think it's going to go deeper.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe, well, 16 maybe, because yeah. uh, I think I heard you on one podcast I was listening. is it dan flores Were you talking with i can't remember who you're talking to was about the idea you correctly said the oldest has been found in was it south, southern south southern south america yeah right?
0: there's older stuff out of austin 16th? texas out of austin texas yeah.
1: yeah so how do you anyway so a long time ago long time ago. And people <laughs> have been hunting whether they're throwing or chucking a rock at something or finally affixed a stone to a spear so people have been hunting out here for a long long time all right so that's important most important thing and uh I hate to use the word sustainably, so we use that, but it worked. Seemed to work okay.
0: Yeah, there were some and periods of very unsustainable hunting practice. Right, right, right. Exactly.
1: On. Also, let's not get into that. But and I, what I would say to people, and because this has come up a lot in the last seventeen years for sure, is well, why, aren't you, you guys are going to be like a park and not allow hunting? Right. So look, what our what our goal is first and foremost is extraordinarily robust wildlife populations, which do not exist there now. So our job is to create robust wildlife populations something you'd see in the Serengeti. You're going to be astounded if we are successful. Give us a couple of decades to pull this off. It's a lot to do. You're going to be astounded. So in other words, don't worry so much about the hunting. If you have that and you have access or you're happy, is it just a philosophical thing about hunting or you think they'll take all the wildlife away? So I realize, okay, well, if you have Serengeti-like stuff that I can see and I can go view it and show my kids and my grandkids, then yeah, it all it all can fit for sure. So that takes care of a lot of it. Is that people have been doing this for thousands of years, and we're not about to let hunters knock back knock it back until there's no. Not, we're not going to let them kill everything, right? And uh, I tell them about my background in it. And I understand the whole the whole sport of it and all that, and it goes away pretty close. Like, well, I still don't like hunting. And they might say, why do people shoot so many coyotes? Why do you have to shoot 50 to 75 coyotes? I can't explain that to you. Why do do they trap a swift fox? What did a swift fox do to you? It's the size of a house cat. Why do you need to trap that thing? Are they going to eat it or nail it on their wall? I can't explain that to you. Why do they have to sit down with a a tripod and shoot 300 prairie dogs at at a go? What's that about? I can't explain that. Let's move on to other things. You want to give me some money for some land? You know, so <laughs> yeah. yeah. So there are some places where I think hunters may be shooting themselves in the foot in terms of capturing the hearts and minds of the general public. But um, no as far as as far as as far as pure big game fill the freezer kind of thing, people can uh, people can get that for the most you part. You
3: say robust numbers, <clears throat> like if you're going to compare it to what Yellowstone has now. Yeah, is there like a way
0: that you guys can? articulate that yeah yellowstone has three to four thousand three 000 to four thousand bison
1: well i want to be uh this will make my crew that i work with very nervous when i start saying numbers so uh because you can always argue it once you get a number but bison i think it's on our website so i can say that i think we could most importantly yellowstone and us is a bit apples and oranges because mm-hmm. you have size but you also have habitat and elevation mm. So, bison from 6,000 feet to over 8,000 feet in that habitat and on, that, on the sides of that volcano or in the bowl of the volcano there, as you know, is very different than where we are at 2,400 feet with an amazing forage. And again, a history of wildlife that Yellowstone never had. Yeah. Or the Rocky
0: Mountains. Yellowstone, right? is like the habitat's all confined to the riparian areas. I mean, like not all, but like there's, there's a lot of alpine timbered stuff that isn't, that isn't doing much good for those animals. Depends on the species.
1: For yeah. wolverines or. Pretty, no, no, no. pretty happy that high stuff you know it just depends on, and by the way you have to realize who you're talking to well, I'm, no, not, I'm talking oh,
0: about just for i'm saying like when you, when you look at like the size of yellowstone the fact that it can support or you know i mean this number yeah. this is a hotly contested number yeah but the fact that yellowstone can support three to four thousand knowing that some number are going to drift out every mm. winter right. uh that i feel like an equal patch of ground out where you're talking about would be able to support a higher number
1: Scientists would say the carrying capacity for wildlife where we are is indeed higher than the exact same number of acres. If you had three million acres at Yellowstone, smack in the middle of the caldera and the volcano there, and three million acres where we were, are and but they're looking at numbers. We're looking at pollinators, grassland birds. Uh, all kinds of game species, predators, etc. So we're looking at the important thing is we think of it like a coral reef. We're looking at every single thing that moves or breathes or digs or flies or whatever. Uh, a very small subset of our bigger view of wildlife or biodiversity is game animals. Uh, but you agree
0: that you guys are known for that. The, uh, people's po- the popular understanding of what you're doing as sort of this emblematic keystone species is you're known for doing bison recovery i mean that's like
1: that's in the air and i hope this podcast can help correct that so help me with that but
0: can you humor me for a minute? can we talk about that for a second let's
1: talk about bison so we're shooting. i mean i wrote
0: a whole damn book about it so I'm, <laughs> little, I'm interested
1: <laughs> about it. i read your book about it it was just quite good by the way and uh someone so, started someone told me it's funny you go you pay hey, before you go on this podcast you got to read his book this book just came out it's really important to read it and i go on he wrote another one. I'm digging around. I Look on Amazon. I saw the one it was 2006, 2005, something like that. Like, I read that. Where's the new one? This is going to be stupid if I don't read his book on bison. Yeah, that what was, was that?
0: 2008. But we got a new cookbook out. That's right, very, right. it's a very important book. <laughs> 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 but like, what, just okay. okay so what I, I, I'm one? super interested in. Uh, Let's I, talk I, about bison. I can't yeah, even boy. tell you how interested I am in, in black-footed ferrets, right. everything. Okay, I am yeah. genuinely. Yeah. But just because it's it, it, it's it's a right. Yeah. It's a big thing. It's a big deal. And it's a, a, like I said in the title of my book, it's an icon. Yeah. So what could, lay out for you what it could look like in terms of that animal.
1: I think uh, what it could look like is uh, the greatest um, bison viewing human experience in regards to bison that anybody alive today in North America has ever experienced. Far beyond Yellowstone. Okay. that's what i think it could look like sure part of that is numbers uh we're shooting for with regards to bison a minimum of ten thousand that's a floor to get there that's our goal as a floor okay i it depends on the year of course with yellowstone you could be thirty five hundred forty five hundred once in a while over five thousand so imagine ten thousand but because it's the prairie is much more viewable and because of the how they they don't have to leave they're in a bowl where we are they're in a bowl right not on the top it's a it's a convex situation so and every time you get sun on the south side of the slopes there you open up even 30 below 0 you still get open grass and sagebrush and lots of lots of uh, really good forage without having to pack out anywhere else and go somewhere so i think them being able to stay be located and stick there is real good we can support more numbers and people sometimes people say 10,000 bison that's bigger than anything in the lower 48 states isn't that just going to be Kind of nuts. And I'll say, well, take a look at those six counties there. There's 450,000 cows. Is that right? 450,000 cows in those six counties where we're working right now. So I think you can fit 10,000 bison back in there. In fact, maybe 15, 20, and you're still not getting in the way of. That's a lot of cows. Yeah. And in Montana, there's a lot more cows than that. Right there's, almost about, a right half, about,
0: there's almost a half million cows in that. Yeah.
1: Two and a half million in the whole state, roughly, 2.4, yeah. 2.6, depending on the year. I think last year was. Just about 2.5 million cows.
6: So, yeah. Um, Do you have the human population in those six counties too? Yeah,
0: Fun numbers to balance. Yeah. I imagine the big um, charismatic predators mm-hmm. play into this. Like you talk about an intact ecosystem. Right. Um, you know, grizzlies are nosing their way out onto the Great Plains. Mm-hmm. Um wolves are expanding what 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 do you picture the american prairie reserves relationship with grizzlies and wolves would be and what do you like what are the what are sort of the the obstacles there
1: i picture those two species uh well black bears cougars wolves and grizzly bears i picture them being there and before anybody jumps on that and says, well, they'll be br- they're will be they bringing them in. We're not. We can't touch those animals. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not going to come in on horse trailers with us or anything like that. But I've been around long. Well, you already, long. I mean, you already got lions there. Definitely got lions. Yeah. They, they suspect they got back from the Little Belts about, they were completely extirpated. They expect they got back maybe mid-1990s uh, from the Little Belts, but they were all gone from this particular area. And uh, we can get back to that, but most scientists I talk to, including FWP biologists, don't believe there's a viable, genetically viable population, I'm putting out too many tags right now for it, they're really, really need, to, they're, they're bottleneck, they're too small, uh, but could be a robust population. But I, what I've seen is, again, we had cabin up uh, in what's called by Gibson Reservoir, my dad built with uh, cheap used material from UBC Lumber and Great Falls, uh, Sun River Canyon. And when you talked about a grizzly bear in the 60s, it was a real anomaly. I mean, if somebody saw one, they talked. we talked about it all winter, that somebody saw a grizzly bear doing something or a track. Well, 70s, maybe a little bit more, 80s, a little bit more. And now, as you know, it's so full, a huge success story, starting to spill out onto the grasslands. And it used to be just 10 years ago, kind of for a visit in the summer, just take a walk about and go back into the mountains. Well, now you can't go back upstream to that concentration well, from a habitat standpoint, and they're having young on the grasslands. So, but then in my mind, I'm thinking Tiber Reservoir, Shoto Conrad, various other places. Now they're east of Fort Benton, and now they're on this map. They just killed two at Denton right there, and now they're by White Sulphur Springs. Just three weeks ago, FWP got one on a camera trap just a little bit west of Harlow, Harlowton, right? So they are well into that red area already. And so that with us doing nothing, wolves are moving north also from the southwest in that direction too, into the crazies and the little belts now. doesn't take much to find out where they are uh, expanding, so I'd expect, why would they not get to where we are because they're already on this map already. It doesn't take very long. Plus the habitat is fantastic. If you're an omnivore, the breaks is terrific. And the history of bears there, if you read Paul, if Lewis and Clark among the grizzlies, mm-hmm. encounters every single day as they came to that area, they were thick, right? So uh, no, it's no surprise. It's not that much of a stretch to figure out why would grizzlies want to be here? Cause that's where they were all the time anyway. Yeah. and so this what I, what I think we got we to make it okay. And Back to the Rocky Mountain front is now I go back up there and I know ranchers who we used to knock on the doors when I was a little kid. Now I'm 60, but I still remember that area. And those ranchers are like, yeah, we see them, don't have that much of a problem with them. They don't slaughter my cows and we've learned to live with them. There's a couple of little adjustments you got to make but they're not yelling for FWP to come kill all these bears, they don't belong here, they're not like great white sharks or something, take them away. Uh, it's become normalized. So to your point, Steve, how do I, what do I see is that over the next 10 or 15 years, there'll be a lot of anxiety because they've been gone for a long time. And then that front edge, that leading edge of the wolves or the bears will be, mm, people are, are, are looking for how do we live with them. FWP is starting to do uh, seminars, evening seminars in Stanford and dent and other places saying you live in bear country now here's what we've learned looking 200 miles to the west about how to live with them you kind of got to get ready for this we don't have the money to helicopter every single bear back to the front uh ain't gonna work anymore um so
0: you know for a while wyoming was spending for every grizzly bear in wyoming even though they are a federally protected species every grizzly bear in wyoming wyoming was spending Over half on each baronet state than what Idaho spends per kid in public school. Expensive.
1: Yeah. I think if, and if you're a hunter and you want to have to be P to spend money on things you want, opening (laughs) habitat, things like that, helicopter rides for one animal at a time (laughs) is taking money away from you getting on more land and more social change stuff and getting public access and uh you know so it's a it's public they don't want to do it either so what i see is them being there it's going to take a long time but i think it will get normalized exactly how we've seen it in montana 200 miles to the west very normalized no big deal
0: yeah a a thing that happens right now is when a grizzly does strike out and oftentimes when a mountain lion strikes out into new country Mm -hmm. um they get in trouble and, and then they die Mm-hmm. I mean they get in trouble on a highway getting hit by a car or they get in trouble with just coming up against that the, the human right. wildlife interface right and they kill something or turn up on someone's doorstep like that's usually the end of the story mm-hmm. because they're going into areas where conflict the, the opportunity for conflict is rich especially with an animal yeah. that doesn't have a set core home range that it knows well yeah he's seeing it for the first time too and they, they stumble into trouble i think that by if you were to create this big block of habitat where they were welcome or presented with a place to live yep. that where they were less likely to come up against that wall. Yeah. The very hard wall of civilization. I think that that would probably aid in their hanging on and perhaps creating breeding pairs and more, you know, static animals, right. They had like a spot where they could live. So, it, I mean, it, it's definitely something that could assist in the expansion and recovery of the species, whether or not you took an active role in that or not, just by creating the habitat,
1: right? Our role is to create habitat so that everything can be there, mm-hmm. not to drag it all in. What we did with bison, because the only way we get them there from wind cave national park in South Dakota and from, uh, from elk Island, Canada, the only way to do it is trucks and trailers and everything in the beginning. Um, we don't need to import anymore, but, uh, and uh, Swift Fox, you actually have to put them in a little cage and bring them down so they don't get hit crossing the highway and let them out somewhere. Other than that, uh, everything gets there on its own, like Cougars did. Cougar, well, let me go back. In this period of time, you guys know this, you watch, I'm sure you've watched FWP's uh, movie, um, Back from the Brink, and read the books, and what happened out here, or every pro, every bighorn, every elk every grizzly bear every wolf every bison was completely wiped out right in this area there wasn't one left the elk came back in ranching trucks with fwp in the 1950s so they were brought back right the rocky mountain sheep yeah, i heard you're talking with garrett and those guys from the sheep foundation they brought those back i think from castle reef in the rockies uh, to put them back in the brakes like early 1960s something like that late 1950s so a lot of stuff has been brought back i think we're pretty much the end of trucking stuff in and now it's just letting populations grow the predators will get there on their own and you can tell every year that the movements are happening it's it's a it's a foregone it's a historic inevitability they're going to return yeah
0: um what would let's say everything was for let's say you don't like this (laughs) no, the, the essays. <laughs> let's say everything was for sale right now mm-hmm. that you that, that you guys felt like when you got a thing like to make this work it needs to be x big yeah right yeah let's say it was all for sale right now and it was just market like standard market value what would it cost
1: to buy all of it um you're probably talking about another 40 50 properties Between 200 and 300 million dollars, roughly. Maybe a little more. Time value of money, you have to put a qualifier on there. How much time do we get to buy it? If it's all available and it's all for sale, if we buy it over 15 years, it's going to cost more because the time value of money. And property out there goes up about 3%, sometimes 4% a year. The longer you wait, the much, much more expensive it gets.
0: So, but that amount of money would push this landscape piece up
1: to. done million th- four million acres because of the contiguous public, because of the public land leverage aspect of it so yeah here's how we we often say people say well you know one of the reasons it's hard to do these projects they're so darn expensive that's why the government got out of the business etc but you think about it this way this entire project everything all the management all the remodeling costs there's a lot of work being done out there people are doing it right now today while i'm sitting here in this warm office is um, purchasing the land, all the remodeling and the operational costs in a very large endowment, which will keep it going forever like a university endowment so you don't have to have the vagaries of administrations and like Yellowstone has $650 million maintenance backlog right now. We want to avoid that so the endowment's baked into that entire thing. Uh, Right about $700 million. That's the price of the project. People go, "That's that's, that's a lot of money. Well, think about it this way. I don't know if any of you sports fans, but watch football or something like that. Not at all.
0: No. <laughs> used,
1: used to be. So the Raiders, Los Angeles Raiders, you know, are, are I mean, Oakland, they're going to move to Las Vegas, so they just got to build a stadium, right? So they just priced that stadium out $1.8 billion. Atlanta Falcons just did one just before the last Super Bowl, $1.6 billion. Dallas Cowboys just did one, $1.2 billion. Minnesota Vikings, et cetera, et cetera. We'd build up a new football stadium almost every year in this country. It's like that. From the idea to the paint's dry, you're playing games, three years. Average one and a half billion dollars. So for the biggest reserve ever created in the United States, at three and a half million acres, a million acres bigger than Yellowstone Park, less than half the cost of one new football stadium. And that's a stadium I'm interested in going to. $15 <laughs> $15 hot dogs. You want to go, or go or play or some yeah. games so on it soon. Where the heck are you going to get that money? Was say, if you got a good idea, the money doesn't exactly fall out of the sky, but you can tell just by that sports story. Entertainment venues, performing arts centers, operas, wings of hospitals are regularly in the six, eight, nine dollars 900000000 million, just like that. Yeah, I mean, the Mark money,
0: Zuckerberg and Jeff Bezos are always losing that amount of money today during. De- losing that amount of money today in value during um, fluctuations in the stock market right so I there's say, a lot of ways to make it seem approachable but so it's still a bunch of money <laughs>
1: yeah yeah so our, our fundraising crew our fundraising crew if they could call in they'd say but tell them that's not easy and it's not easy uh to raise that um it's a lot easier to ma- raise money for a football stadium or anything else uh because people odd.
0: look at it as a big economic driver
1: and it, doesn't, and have a, it foot- doesn't have a big footprint. Well, it's also you have a village you have a, it's a tribal thing. okay I'm, I, I have a I have my Packer's t-shirt on yeah we need this much money. Where, where can I send in my 10 bucks or whatever else it is So we don't have in this kind of situation or a lot of things around the world I work with geographic when I get back to the hunting idea. I think it's not this nuanced. they're not as I can tell, they're actually into market hunting, including the chief scientist Jonathan Bailey. Uh, so what, what now, uh, with National Geographic, let's get back to that in a second. But I think one thing that's hard about conservation, I'd like to get onto actually, while hunters, I think are blowing a huge opportunity to make things better in Montana is people don't get organized. There's no sense of tribe or we're together. So you have a few tribes, you have Ducks Unlimited, you have Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Deer Foundation, backcountry hunters and anglers, but not enough for critical mass Hunters could not pull off a fundraising thing to build a stadium, and hunters are not organized enough to actually make big-time gutsy conservation happen because they don't want to be a part of a big, don't want to be a part of a bigger tribe like Packers fans or Atlanta fans. And you get things done in numbers, you get things done with gusto if you pull together numbers. So we have to go beyond Montana to build this thing because everyone's sitting back waiting for us to be done and say, "Are you done yet? Can I go in and shoot something?" It's kind of irritating.
0: Yeah, but one of the things people say is they say that you won't guarantee hunting access in perpetuity. Well, I don't even know what the hell that means cuz I don't know what who has made that guarantee. Right. I mean like I don't know any private ranchers that have made hunting access a guarantee in perpetuity or how they would go about doing that. Well, I but think- that's a criticism.
1: Well, I think, yeah, the a criticism, but here's a couple of things on again, that. Again, yeah.
0: I, I don't even know what, like I said, I don't even know what that looks like, right. how one would draft up a guarantee of hunting access in perpetuity, but but it's a thing people say, and there's suspicions that what will happen is, right. you know all this, I'm just telling you what I hear out walking around on the streets, man. Oh, I hear too. All the right. suspicion is, what you're going to do, is you're going to do this, and then you're going to be like, ha, suckers, it's a park. Right. Right.
4: That's what. That's the accusation I've heard most frequently leveled at this is that, I mean, it has been mixed up in the national park. I mean, just having that right. that phrase in there has complicated this enormously, I imagine.
6: Or if you so, don't even get there, to go back to the first part of this conversation, right? You got private land. Mm-hmm. Private property right. rights in Montana are, are strong. Yeah. Um, and as we already explained, you got private land that is the key to locking up or unlocking a bunch of public land. Yeah. And have, what is going to guarantee that you guys just don't exercise private property rights that
0: everybody else does and says, yeah, you know what, actually we're not going to let you on today. Because all of that land is hunt like whether the APR are, never existed, all that land was accessible to hunting. 80% of it. Yeah. So like you had ranchers, that like their families were hunting, people were out hunting it. So and also relative to you got to also understand, like, the the power of the relative perspective. What Lewis and Clark saw there, and there are many explanations for why they saw the abundance of wildlife they did, and what George Catlin saw there. Um, granted, it's not anywhere near that now, but relative to what people are experiencing elsewhere, you ever hear the sh- uh, shifting paradigm
1: syndrome, shifting baselines?
0: Yeah. Yes. Okay. That is still the land of milk and honey. Mm-hmm. Okay, remains relative to everything else that people are seeing. Yeah. That remains ex- like this great wildlife haven. Right. So, from a it, it, like, not that you have a struggle hunting, understanding the perspective. I hear from people the perspective is it's pretty great. Yeah. It's all open to hunting. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey, everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded... By one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who over recent months I've become friends with. And my God have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, watch that video, and in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now, for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now, you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER, and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Um, why would I take the risk of removing millions of acres of huntable land from hunting because, because people are just like really suspicious about the long-term plan? Right. That's all. And I don't even know. Like when I have it, I always say, dude, I don't know. I'd like to talk to that guy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> You're right. Well, I think the shifting baseline thing is very interesting to me Um on two things. One is the amount of wildlife that used to be out there. So it's kind it's of a little bit frustrating. Sometimes saddens me that people go out there and see what's out there now, and they think it's good. I don't think it's good. Uh, I think there can be a lot more, and I've covered that country a lot of times, in airplanes, all kinds of aircraft, on foot. Twice now I've walked 185 miles, the entire length of that map, west to east. Biked it on my mountain bike. I've been out there hundreds of times. And I was raised to look for game. I was absolutely trained to do that as a kid, right? And a lot of our folks who are with APR, big game hunters, and you go out there and you go, It's it is really unbelievable. This is empty. It is absolutely empty. I've had folks from Fishwalf and Parks uh, in aircraft, flying back and forth, fly hundred miles, go any they said I can go anywhere I want. So they're pilot fly around UL Ben whatever seen any elk yet nope go south of the river 20 more miles seen an elk yet nope uh go a little further see any more elk? seen an elk not one and this is 100 miles slow and slow or walking with us 185 miles one last time we did it 185 miles we didn't see one elk in the in a the, 90 the period and you hear Lewis and Clark or whoever else coming up. They didn't even start hunting until four o'clock in the afternoon when they got done working and they got <laughs> enough elk to feed 40 people every night. If you tried to walk upstream and start elk hunting, can you imagine, just every night your job, two of you, two guys, to go out and get elk to feed John 40 Coulter. people, uh, could you do that? You'd have some pretty hungry people within the first three days, right? It's yeah. just not the same. So... I think one baseline that shifted, I think we have an amnesia about what used to be there. Yeah, man. How do you deal with that amnesia? That's a big thing. And there's no one book, would be nice, but I brought about nine books here that you read and you have to take bits and pieces from each one and piece the one together and realize it spans 50 years. They never met each other. They're all saying the same thing. That's some interesting cross-referencing. The other shifting baseline, you're all pretty, very young, That I'm looking around the, the five of you. But in the 60s and 70s, it was a different experience. The baseline of walking up to a ranch was like, yeah, go ahead. In the Dearborn, even if somebody who owned the Dearborn, which they did, they were in California in the late 60s. We'd call them down there. My dad found out who it was, Gary Cooper's old ranch and Tom Mix. And we got to hunt mule deer down there. It was just great. Or we'd go want to hunt elk or whatever else. It was most likely, unless you got somebody really crabby, Oh, yeah, how long are you going to be here? Well, if we can put our camper over there just a couple days, got a lot of deer. Is that okay? Yeah, it's all right. My dad got really good. It was either George Dickel or Old Crow, and they bring a (laughs) fifth, and you're in. And I got a whole bunch of brownies because the lady was very nice to me, little kid. I tried to look really cold. So another baseline is you guys feel like you're locked out because the attitudes have changed. Now you knock on the door, and they say no or hell no go away, private property, don't bother me, or sorry, it's leased out. That was not a factor. So you've got a baseline now where private property, very unlikely you're going to get on it. Somebody's gotten to it before me, an absentee landowner, a grouchy landowner, or another hunter that's leased it out. That's not That's not what I found is normal. So taking it back to normal is both wildlife populations and an APR being like, by the time you get there, the fences are gone, the... Keep out signs are gone and there's a new sign and it says, welcome to American Prairie Reserve. And that's the entrance to our private property. That makes sense? And you'll see that if you go, I you'll think see you, that now.
0: I think that if, yeah, I think that that makes sense. I think that that would be, that that's exciting to people. And, and I know like you have way bigger, like you guys have a mission mm-hmm. and you're driving toward the goal. And I don't expect it to be that, um, I don't expect it to be that this is all meant to be in service of, of humans like right. you're doing something for wildlife
1: and humans I I I have a I, I my background's in psychology and sociology yeah. I'm very interested in human beings and I think as we pull further away from nature you've probably seen Richard Liu's Last Child in the Woods the nature deficit disorder idea adults have that disorder too and I think sometimes it's just hard to where do I go where's something big enough where full full ecology is happening uh my wife and I, we've probably been to our 37-some-odd years together. Been to about almost 40 different countries around the world. We like diving. You get down on a coral reef, you know, you feel really small, particularly when you see sharks come by. But you get on a big coral reef in Panama or Honduras or somewhere, and you look at that and just go, that's unbelievable. You're looking at the entire thing, how how it all works together, the plants and the animals, the little stuff, the big stuff, everything. And I think, unfortunately, from a terrestrial standpoint, what most people think about the outdoors when they drive around, uh, they see fences and cows or crops, which is cool. There's nothing against that. We own a beef company, so I'm not against cattle. Yeah. Uh, that's for sure. But I have a statistic here. And this came from natural, natural Agricultural Service Statistics. You guys don't know how many acres there are in Montana? No. No. 90, I know how wide it is. 93, <laughs> 93 million acres. How many acres in agriculture, ranching and farming out of 93 million? 59 million, 59 million acres out of 93 is in ag. That's 64% of the surface of Montana's in agriculture. So I think normally, of course, when you go out there and drive around, that's mostly what you're going to see. So I think though, there's a, there's a, a coral reef like thing out there to just be stunned by the beauty and be stunned by the diversity and the richness of wildlife and nature and biodiversity—just knock your socks off! I think it, it used to be like that. It can be again without putting a dent in the agricultural industry, not a dent, or a world food supply, or anything else. So that's that, to me—that's what's really exciting—and make it accessible to people. As far as as far as saving things permanently, the answer is yes. In due time, And you're taking a snapshot in time. You're looking at the first third of a really big construction project. So if I'm building a house, and you know there's sheetrockers there and and there was no tapers, a lot of sheet rockers, framers and plumbers and concrete and all that. And you walk in and say, where do you want this couch? I say, hang on, hang on. It's a total mess right now. I'll t- Give me a couple months. And then I'll tell you exactly where the couch is going to be permanently and forever in perpetuity. That's You want to know where that couch is going to go? I don't know yet. I haven't even stood in the living room. The walls aren't up yet. Yeah. So when you say, how come you're not putting permanent easements across your land right now? because we don't even understand the land. It's huge. The last property we bought is 52,000 acres. That's our 29th one. Just to get to know that and how the wildlife moves around, how do we know where to put a permanent easement right now? It's in block management. Go out and enjoy it. 10, 12 years from now, we'll know where we put something that sticks forever. One of the problems of conservation easements, I hate to say, but We'd be much more likely to put conservation easements. where, And we have Montana Land and easements. We're already starting to do some. Nobody knows about that. But we're starting to put things in easements. you got to be awfully careful. If you were able to sit down with the easement entity every 10 years and say, how is it working? Could we shift the footprint of the building envelope over here? Or we made a mistake on that road. It's too close to the creek bed. And it's really messing up the travel of this particular species. The pronghorn don't like it. They're spooked or whatever. Could we go up around this hill over here and then down this other side? And they go, you had your chance. Never, ever, ever is that discussable. Ever. So when I come from business, nothing in nature is like that. Nature evolves. It's adaptable. It's resilient. It shucks and jives with new information. And I don't want to be trapped at this point into something that is never discussable again. No matter if you made a horrible mistake, you can't change it. Yeah. Yeah. So Fish, Wildlife, and Parks does the same thing. They want to put easements on. We would like to. We like FWP. I'm into block management and all that. But right now, they want to put rest rotation grazing on the private land if they do conservation easements. And rest rotation grazing, even the BLM is beginning to break open. And look, they have 11 experiments around the West right now taking a look at the change or evolution towards something called outcome-based grazing management. Outcome-based. So, I can read to you. What, you want to hear what that says? Outcome-based grazing emphasizes conservation performance, ecological, economic, and social outcomes, and cooperative management of public lands. This will help demonstrate that permitted livestock grazing on public lands can operate under a less rigid framework than is commonly used in order to better reach agreed-upon habitat and vegetation goals. Shared conservation stewardship of public lands while supporting use such as livestock grazing and other things. So what they're saying saying is rather than forcing you to use a technique like rest rotation grazing, we're going to force you to nail the outcome. Good looking forage for, yes, you can extract, it's an extraction industry, extract some to go in your cow and raise the poundage, but there's got to be left for wildlife, a lot left for wildlife, shaggy mosaic of habitat, not, you know, I love the outcome-based grazing idea that the BLM is now spearheading. That's really cool. I think it's very smart. They're experimenting and adapting rather than saying rest rotation forever, even 500 years from now, rest rotation, the be-all, end-all, no innovation possible. I don't think that's a good way to look. So we're going to be pretty slow on FWP easements if we have to put in rest rotation. Not that we don't like FWP, but they're forcing a technique. I often use the analogy as, I like a lot of history books. I'm reading one right now. But ships in the the late 1700s and these Spanish Corsairs and the privateers, they got these boats to chase down the big boats that were laden with all kinds of products. And they just, they couldn't carry as much, but they're super fast where they set up the sails and everything. Uh, French, I'm sorry, French Corsairs. And they'd catch all the, they'd catch these ships and they would, their ship couldn't, one ship couldn't take it all, but they brought three, but they're really fast, chase them down, take all their stuff and then leave with it. And it was well-known technique. And the people who were hauling stuff, go, how, how do you beat that ship? And what we could have said right there is the, the Spanish, the French Corsairs are so fast. that That's the end of the shipping innovation. Let's just go with those forevermore. This is what the French naval use, his Corsairs sailing ships, right? Yeah. Forever. Well, try to run one of those in the America's Cup today. Not gonna do very well, right? And the idea of rest rotation being, and I've talked with Alan Savory over email. He knows about our project, likes our project. Uh, or uh, Russ Hormay's idea of restoration, great for the time, but there's probably going to be, give it 100 years, I bet it will evolve. And locking down on this now as the best, and we can quit thinking about it. There's no innovation necessary. I don't think it's the right way to go. So we're going to be slow on easements because easements are forever. We'll we'll protect it, but just give us some time to get to know our land so we know what we're doing. Let me ask you about another management. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes perfect sense.
0: Okay. I want to ask you about another management obstacle i could foresee and how you picture this yeah um when you get the if you build a contiguous block mm-hmm. and it's a lot of mixed ownership there's, yeah. there's gonna be federal lands state lands privately held lands tribal tribal lands in yeah. the block I, it's gonna be really hard to get everyone on the same page in terms of management. meaning there are places right now where for instance like bison which you imagine functioning as wildlife Mm -hmm. but in this state they they fall under the domain of department of livestock under a lot of situations so you what is the com what is the conversations you're having with federal land managers if you look toward the future Mm -hmm. what are the conversations where you're saying we want to look like this and we want the chunks that are under your administration yeah to assist this mm-hmm. but it seems that you're going to have these internal very hard borders where management goals management practices are anything but unified
1: yeah not to, it's a good concern but I, I feel just the opposite I'm um, quite optimistic about being able to come to a uh, shared set of practices mm-hmm. we're never going to own the BLM they own that and run that We're never going to manage the public's wildlife. That's FWP. Not going to own or run the state lands. But uh, an example, Sun Prairie on your map there, that's about uh, 25, 26,000 acres, right? So you're up into nearly 40 square miles of land. It's big. Mm -hmm. A lot of bison on there. Uh, So what we have, when we first got there, there was miles and miles of cross fencing, fencing out the state sections and the BLM pieces, which are the light blue on that map. Talked to the BLM and they go, what do you want to do? We said, well, this is different, but we would like to take cattle off and put bison on and we'd like year round grazing and we'd like to have no interior fences. And we showed them lots and lots of science papers and to, about how bison can basically rotate themselves. And, um, that, uh, we will, at that time, it wasn't at that time, this is many years ago, we said, we will, can you test, can you judge us on outcomes? come down and take a look at the habitat after we've been there for a few years. First, we asked them, what do you want this to look like? Which sometimes a lot of landowners don't do. We invited the BLM, we said, take a look at this, tell us what you want to, what, what you want this to look like. I'd like this a little taller. These forbs are, are pretty hammered. Um, I'd like to have this looking like this, et cetera. Plant diversity, plant height, things like that. And some hit hard, some not so hard because they're big in the grassland birds as they should be in different kinds of habitat. So we started with outcome-based grazing in 2005 with our first property. Eventually, they said, you know, you guys seem to know what you're doing. They let us take down the fences between our private and our BLM. Later, the state did the same thing. We took down the fences between those two entities and the state. And we have two or three state sections inside there. If you go to Sun Prairie North, I think, Steve, what you'll see is a example of the future. You go out there, you see, first you see species. You see elk. And you see some, we don't have very many. Pronghorn, they're starting to come back. Uh, mule deer, uh, a little bit of whitetail, not, not usually on there. And bison. And those animals walk across BLM, and then state, and then private. And there's no fences. They have no idea where they are. What's really cool, we have a campground out there It's full of elk hunters right now. Right in the middle of some Prairie, where you're looking at, the hunters also—they know where they are, but there's no indicate, there's no signs, and there's no fences. They walk across unimpeded across the landscape. They're going private to BLM to state to private. It all looks and feels the same. Yeah, that's a big area. That's half the size of the entire Gallatin Valley here. So that's a microcosm of the future. Yeah, and we've done it once. All you got to do is scale that up. It can happen, and the agencies, particularly the on-the-ground people, the FWP. Real good to work with. We don't see eye to eye on everything. No way. We don't they what? don't want to move as fast as us. What's range? something you don't see eye to eye on? Um with it, with fish liking and parks? Yeah. Like, one is the well, one is the need for rest rotation grazing. Do we really oh, yeah. have to do that? Yeah. Okay. One is necessarily the amount of 100 days if we do a conservation easement. Uh so with easements we're having a little bit of difficulty right now because if we put a conservation easement, they'll say we want a thousand days on that piece of property. Well, a 1, thousand hundred days right now is okay, but what if we're down to only this many bighorns? How do we control that later on? Yeah, or uh, they're on our private property. What if it starts to get out of control in terms of people driving off road and things like that? It's uh, it, this is never discussable again, right? So we're going to go slow on that, but in terms of
0: so you strike agreements every year or however,
1: well, we're we inherited some purchase properties that already had FWP easements on them. Okay. And some of the part, some parts, some aspects of the easements feel too mm, draconian to us and unchangeable and undiscussable. So we're going to wait a little while before we do more until we're absolutely certain that 1,100 days is the right or number or 700 or 1,200 or whatever else. We got to get to know the properties. So what uh, we do agree on lots of things like we'd like to have um, more of certain critters, pronghorn, whatever it might be. Yeah and uh working on pronghorn studies right now we're engaged uh collaborating with them on the possibility of reintroduction of possibility of reintroduction of swift fox uh they have an interest we have an interest it's all about timing that's got to seem
0: like an easy win because i can't believe there's a big anti-swift fox lobby
1: you never know they might bite you i don't know (laughs) they're about that big yeah uh
0: that's like pretty cuddly man no, no <laughs> one's gonna get pissed no one's because most people are never gonna know they're there anyway right and they're nocturnal so. maybe, maybe prairie dog shooters so they'll get mad it. it's yeah. gonna trend. yeah but they but they will tell you that there's too many prairie dogs so they'll be glad right, right, to have right. the assistance
1: swift Fox don't eat prairie dogs they eat bugs and grasshoppers and stuff like they that. don't eat prairie dogs okay prairie dogs are bigger than they are
0: yeah we we bumped, yeah prairie we bumped, dogs we bumped, we bumped
1: into one down in
0: uh in mexico that are winter
1: so but i think so i think i think the i think the important thing blm the range cons the on the ground fwp guys um uh what we're interested in for instance and i really want to get to before we so don't end this till i get to this it's really important how i see hunters and what hunters can do um that's hunters that might trust us in our long-term vision what anyway.
0: hunters can do at the apr
1: uh in montana i think okay i think you know being in hunting and they, 60s and 70s, I was, you know, definitely big into hunting. Member of the NRA, all that kind of stuff. It was just living in hunting camps and thing. But I think hunters are making some mistakes now that are hindering where things they they want to go uh, in this state, whether it's access or population numbers or whatever else it might be. So let me know when you want to get into that. So go ahead, man. Uh, how much time we have? How much time we got? You got time to do all that? Yeah, well, I got a lot of questions.
6: <laughs> lot of questions go can ahead, we jump ahead. back to, to the relationship with fwp sure so i think we missed a big one is is where are you guys at on the bison conversation right because we got wild bison right and we got livestock right. you guys have bison as livestock right now correct correct and you man and you're that uh, there, there's some benefits to that um but long-term goal is bison as wildlife so can you comment on like where i'm assuming right that that is the long-term goal correct
1: yeah i th- oh so we got a lot of bison right now about 800 or so and we're on a fl- we have to flatline them now because we're waiting for our next approval of the next pieces of property where we can go out like sun prairie so we're in we're in phase going around this block again to where we are allowed to put bison out on the blm so we have to hold but the, that'll take off at some point i can't predict when Want to get approval for our environmental assessment and we go. Um, but the, I
6: think that's one thing. Like earlier, right. you you hit on it. Well, like, yeah, to satisfy um, the grazing piece of this BLM lease, right. we turn that over. We turn cattle off and we turn bison on. Right. And then a lot of people are probably like, well, bison's a wild animal. Like,
1: yeah, well, in this
6: case, you get to satisfy the lease by turning bison as livestock onto that lease.
1: So bison have a, as you know, a very funny dual citizenship status in Montana. Ours, there's nothing um, confusing about it. They are livestock. We pay a livestock fee, about four dollars and twenty cents a year on every single animal, just like you pay you pay like buck fifty on a cow, four twenty or whatever on a bison. Um, they are a livestock animal on paper. Meaning you pay the
0: BLM. Just so I just want listeners to understand, you pay the BLM a fee to be able to allow to run your livestock on BLM land, same way a cattle ranch
1: would do. $1. sixty for a cow-calf, just like exact same price as a cow. Same price. Exact yeah. same price as a cow. Yep. And the other thing I was just talking about is the Department of Livestock fee. There's a lot of fees associated with having livestock to different entities. So we pay exact same as cows, in some cases, more. Department of Livestock charges, for some reason, more for a bison than for a cow. Uh, so. Right now, I foresee for quite some time, because as you take a look at trends, I want to get back to some of that, the trends you look at, the trend of bison on the way to becoming wildlife, I think it'll eventually happen down the road, but it's not happening very fast. So I think our our bison are going to be livestock for quite some time to come. I'm perfectly okay with that. Probably beyond my career lifetime, I'm guessing.
5: Is there anything... So, oh, sorry, go
1: ahead. I think the way I look at it, you know, are we going to try to... Ram it through somehow, I think the way I look at it, back to, we started the podcast with um, looking at females, let's go back to females and funny, Michelle just raised her hand. I think of it, I look at it like women's suffrage. And it was in the late 1840s in this big meeting in Seneca, New York, where they all of a sudden they realized women should have the right to vote. Susan B. Anthony and a bunch of other f- folks started different organizations and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed, and pushed. but that, that that first seminal meeting where they got the epiphany that women should have the right to vote was in the late 1840s in the of New York. And you know when they got the right to vote? 1920. 1920. I mean, how obvious is That's it? That's when all
6: those guys got how, together and decided to give them that gift. Some of you.
1: <laughs> well, it's about time. Maybe even some in this they room think hard. that was a big mistake that they ever got. To, who knows? But, but, you know, that took, think how long that took and how obvious that is. I think polls keep saying, I don't know, a little over 60% of Montanans like to see wild bison in Montana. That's one indicator of a trend. They just became our national mammal. That's another indicator of a trend. Remember that? Uh, Every animal, moose, grizzly bear, you just name it, goes anywhere it wants in Montana except for one, who's our our national mammal and 60% of the people in Montana. Every time you poll, more people want to. But look at women's suffrage, 70 years to get the right to vote, after people realized it was the right thing to do, and that was, and a lot of people even in 1920 were still upset that it happened. And I think bison. I don't know. It could, you know, sometimes historic inevitability, whether it's legalized marijuana, gay marriage, right to vote, bison in Montana, can take a long, long, long time. What was your qu- What was your question, Michelle?
5: I kind of answered it. Oh. I was going to say beyond social tolerance and acceptability of this animal. Yeah. What other factors do you think are inhibiting that acceptance?
1: I think. At different times, like in the women's suffrage example, at different snapshots in time along that continuum until uh, it actually occurs and you tip over the edge and it's there, I think the moment we're sitting in right now, which is kind of the only thing I I can live with because it's today, is lack of understanding of the animal itself because it's been gone for so long. So the people that are most afraid, uh, concerned, um, skeptical, whatever it might be, Uh, I find the, there's a correlation, the people that have the most vehemence against it have had the least experience with the animal. Our direct neighbors who see them all the time across the fence, here's our cows and there's our bison, hundreds and hundreds of bison, even watching them in the rut when they're really going at it, they go, not a big deal because they've been desensitized. They know us and they know the bison because they see them. All the time, the people that are most hot about it, the further you away, get away from our bison, the more people get upset. Yeah. You start
4: seeing those signs, those huge green signs that say "Don't Buffalo Me."
1: Yeah, there's all kinds of signs. <laughs> uh, so, but uh, uh, is that, that, that to answer to your question, Michelle? Yeah, well, I think the other yeah. thing like, at the moment it's just lack of understanding because it's been gone for so long. Not unlike a bear.
0: Yeah, you also have there's like this there's this big sort of theoretical debate about them where it's like clashing worldviews. But the debate will get hung up on there's details along the way, you know, like like with like in Yellowstone, there's kind of like we're sort of in this this debate about like what is this animal, what's our relationship to it, is it wildlife, is it livestock? But then the debate gets hung up on like a snag, like brucellosis, right? And brucellosis, like this this disease, the disease spread issue, it winds up being that you can avoid the big conversation about right. where are we headed as a people yeah what is our relationship with wildlife and native flora and fauna and you go like well yeah but you know let's let's hang it up on brucellosis for a minute yeah and i think that we'll always th- there will always be a thing of the day where the debate centers around that you know
1: Bruce, and i you know and, 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 and that's
0: probably not even an issue because you guys probably have quarantined disease-free
1: yeah, we do. In the early two thousands, that was a really big one, of the brucellosis. But then we sat down with a lot of rancher groups, sometimes you know fifty at a time, in circle of chairs at Second Creek Hall in Phillips County, and us. And they say, "Tell us what you're doing," and they ask really good questions. Um, and we said, "Here's how we do it." We at the source, when Cave National Park, that at time, Elk Island National, we. We do all 20 diseases, reportable diseases, by the Department of Livestock, not just brucellosis. Make sure they don't have it as they load up. They get TB, tuberculosis checked on both sides of the border. Uh, It's just a a law, so they have to be quarantined here, but it's for TB. When they get here, they sit for a couple of months, then they go out onto the landscape. We also do testing, uh, random testing, knock them down with tranquilizer darts, take hair and blood samples, send that in, so we get a report every year of how the herd health is doing. Yeah a lot of people don't test that much uh so and those tests are available to anybody who wants them if ranchers want a hard copy just come over we'll give you a hard copy we'll show you exactly what got back so completely open book and transparent on that so the brucellosis actually it pops up a little bit here and there but since really after 2010 2011 it's really tapered off to it's gone yeah for the most part a little bit here and there but mostly it's gone and um now the the idea of wild bison and what they will do to us and damaging property and how yeah, much yeah that's what I was
0: gonna say like then it becomes and you get my point that yeah there will always be another thing and so then it's like well the integrity of fences yeah that's really what's at issue for me is the integrity of fences and and now we'll talk about that for a long time so right? bison
1: crash our fe- you know bison crash fences, and we'll say Fish Wildlife and Parks one of the best things they've done for us a lot of good things they do. It's a good organization. They helped us design the most wildlife friendly fence we could possibly imagine, wildlife and people friendly fence. So it's 44 inches at the top, so elk can sail over. We've got a lot of cameras that show elk sailing over. Pronghorn underneath, 18 inches off the deck, off the bottom, so the pronghorn can hit it at some pretty good speed. They don't have to go back and forth and back and forth. And then there's one hot wire. Bison don't like that hot wire. Oh, okay. All solar paneled, or it's all solar powered in one and a quarter mile increments, so the whole fence doesn't go down but you watch wildlife we want to make it like Gore-Tex sort of all wildlife can go back and forth but it stops the bison that's a trick <laughs> that is a trick yeah that's amazing to watch these cameras in a you know five point boil elk lazy that's judgmental but all the other elk go over he sticks his head through the fourth and fifth wire just jams through that wire and uh camera's shaking all over the place but he's rubbing that hot wire in his belly couldn't care less nothing nothing bothered is bothered about that heat that hot wire except the bison they don't like it so they back off They stay away. So we use one hot wire to keep them where they are. The other thing we use is tons of water and amazing forage. They're happy at home. When you're happy at home, there's not a lot of pressure to go that direction. So yeah, some people talk about fences, but then we show them our fences and they go, wow, that actually keeps them in. And we got more than a decade uh, and hundreds of bison experience behind us that we know what we're doing. So you don't don't have an epidemic of escapees. Mm Mm-mm get a lot of cows on our on our property but that's how it is out there you call somebody and go i think these are your cows because the people on that side have sementals and you have angus these are definitely black do you want us to put them in a corral and say no can you hold until next week and that's just how it is out there you know particularly bulls they get to fight and push through a fence then they start walking down a ditch and just going out walk about and everybody's pretty pretty easy going yeah about cows um you had a lot of questions yes go let them rip cal uh i'm good i'm done (laughs) all right i mean i got questions uh, that i still have i got questions i want to talk about hunters (laughs) yeah um man i don't know if you guys are into hunting but i want to talk about yeah
6: i got deep montana roots just as it sounds like you do and uh i was doing a lot of digging you guys
1: gonna out out montana
0: each other now
6: no Uh, no are you older than me (laughs) (laughs) um uh but it, it, it like a lot of the core arguments against APR are are can kind of be summed up like this, right? So one thing that I got from multiple folks is like, oh yeah, that's Sean Garrity.
2: Mm-hmm.
6: He uh he's a real smooth talker. Mm-hmm. Wears tight jeans and slip-on shoes. <laughs> okay. Um, which I think is hilarious, <laughs> right? Because every rancher in eastern Montana, they wear pretty tight jeans and slip on shoes that are just called cowboy boots. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's how like a lot of these arguments are like driving up land property values. Um, but to me, and we talked about it a bunch and, and use this word access In the beginning of this thing, we, we hit it pretty good, but you know, like our secretary of the interior at one point, he was trying to hijack the word access as a place where you can drive your RV and hook it up to power and water. Mm -hmm. Right. That's not the access that you and your dad enjoyed on the Rocky mountain front and the Bob Marshall. Right. Um, and so I know a lot of folks, myself included is, is like, there, there's a hole here that I think, and, and I think everybody in this room is going to agree with you that hunters do plenty of shooting themselves in the foot. Um, but it's, it's hard and we do good. We, we're doing better, I think, every year on activating hunters around issues and and getting uh, that united voice. That I'm f- in full agreement, man. We need to get a hell of a lot better at that. Um, but it's like, so how is APR going to define access, right? And and I, I had one real snide comment where they're like, well, yeah, access might be you got to go. Drive around in one of their lifted up Sprinter vans in their Serengeti model, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and and you know I am I guarantee I'm not going to say anything you don't already know, right? right? But you know if you're looking for more funding, like every nonprofit is, is like, is there? Can you guys add something into your mission statement that is bulletproof and long term that says, yeah, we are going to guarantee access to hunters. We're going to guarantee hunting long-term and that's way where we're going to swing these hunters over and be like more favorable long-term and maybe we're providing a big chunk of uh dollars for the fund is there is there some middle ground there
1: no
0: okay are you guys are you guys ironclad on allowing um swift fox or might you change your mind about swift fox
1: allowing swift fox yeah oh we're working hard to get him in there so that's Absolutely. You,
0: but you don't need to leave it open that you're going to change your mind about it.
1: How about so yeah. No, okay. But it's not in our mission statement.
0: <laughs> We're all about so not Fox. in your mission statement though.
1: Here's the reason why is I think uh, to your question why are we not going to put that in the mission statement? I've looked at this statement for a long time and we've made it simpler and shorter. We're trying to make it more universal and uh, so that it fits a lot. Because If I put that in there for hunters, this is what to me that would be what a politician would do. I'm gonna promise this for hunters etc and then you go down the road i just walk three blocks down then i'm gonna promise this for snowmobilers then i'm gonna promise this for skydivers then i'm gonna promise this for audubon people and bird watchers and pretty soon you got yourself all tangled up in a lot of promises that don't match up yeah so i'm gonna pick something really big not amorphous and squishy but you know the seven points of the north american hunting north american conservation model there's seven yeah. foundation calls them the seven sisters those are pretty high-level high, high level things, and it doesn't say this and this and this and access to whatever amounts mm-hmm. it might be, right? And that has endured for a very long time. I think it could use some tweaks, have some comments about that.
0: And there's tons of contradictions with it. Not, there's, there's tons of things that...
1: Exceptions, yeah. Well, there's yeah. tons stuff. of things that,
0: aren't, that we're doing that don't jive
1: yeah. with the model. It's not working, yeah. right? Yeah, privatization and all that kind of stuff. So what I want to do is try to include everybody... And uh, and uh, you know, what we we want to do is include everybody in our mission statement, but not get screwed down so tight that we made this promise back in 2017 to something whatever it might be. We'll hear people say, well, you just you have this in block management, the two crow, you got this other place over here on the PN, which is true, where you can't hunt elk. There's no elk hunting allowed. The reason why is we don't have any elk on the PN. And the populations out there are pathetic as it is. Let us build robust populations. We'll open it to elk. You can hunt mule deer, sharptail, pheasants, and all kinds of other stuff on the PN, but no elk because there isn't any. We did give out two bighorn sheep tags on the PN because FWP region six, four asked us to do that. But, yeah, we're going to try to build... Right now, we're trying to build robust populations. We take all this flack. See, they lied. You can't hunt elk on the, on the two crow. They're against... Or on the PN, on the they're against hunters. Life is nuanced. You have I've to... I've been on a
0: lot of block management properties where they have don't touch rules. Yeah. I've hunted pheasants all the time.
1: I've on, on in Shoto, you know, north of Shoto on Solid Road up there for pheasants on block management. And you come on, you get to do the morning... You get three guns, doesn't matter how many people in the party, three guns, you're off at noon because another crew comes in, and Sundays only, because the runners are at church, they don't want you there on Saturdays because it's too loud, all kinds of restrictions. They're not against hunting. So there's five of us, one of us has to leave a gun in the trunk, truck, we just block with the dogs, you know, you just got to adjust. But uh, mostly what we get critiqued by is, I want to be able to hunt and trap everything or you're not into hunters. I think life is not that black and white. And because of that black and whiteness, frankly, permeates some of the hunting community. That's why hunting's losing some public support, frankly. It's just too aggressive, too in-your-face, too blunt. And nature is nuanced. And so is a big project like this.
0: Okay. What's the big advice? That's it?
1: no oh i was just answering one of his many questions here yeah here's the advice i think you guys could help with maybe you'll say nah we don't want to do that that's your guys you guys' job <laughs> so one of the things we get with fish fly from parks and they're not against this they're just going guys we're in a bind here um some of this is region six some region four and we'll say we'd love to have more of this particular thing so let's just focus on elk okay yeah. it's not so touchy okay And we said that, you know, as best we could tell, the carrying capacity from a science standpoint out here for elk is, if you have 450,000 cows, there could be a lot of elk out here. In this whole area, whole region, the counts might be six or 7,000, maybe a little bit more elk out there. Not much in a huge area. Again, you can spend an awful lot of time, and I have, hunting around any time of the year. You're going to have a hard time finding elk, right? So, robust populations of elk, how do we get there? And how are quotas or population criteria set and nor, nor, the north american conservation model says wildlife is set through science and we talk to people in the region they go no landowner tolerance yeah so it has nothing to do with science and carrying capacity and where it can be and can we fit this many in here well you could it's social science <laughs> yeah so like i guess it is social science exactly so you go to a, a you, you go they say we would like to raise quotas but we get extreme pushback from a rancher this is going to get onto something you can do, I think. From a rancher saying, the elk are eating me out of house and home. Uh, You're mismanaging me. You're the pu- it's the public's wildlife. It's on my place. It's eating my stuff. You're mismanaging it. Population, overall populations of elk need to go down. Those people say something to their legislature. the legislature. legislature says something to the FWP commission. Commission says, lower those quotas. I'm getting a lot of heat up here in Helena. Quotas go down, and that's where a lot of the on-the-ground guys are. Have no animosity towards the FWP folks. They're in a difficult bind. So imagine the scenario. I was thinking I was in Spain last year with my wife, and we were eating this unbelievable prosciutto, and I had time to think about philosophical things. I said, so "Imagine. I know the front pretty well. It's where I grew up. Imagine you had a rancher and they're ranching cows out on the front somewhere west of Shoto, right? Just in those slopes underneath Castle Reef or Sun or uh, or Sawtooth, and that a lot of you guys have been up there before, and." Uh, somehow they're reading something they go gosh you see what these what prosciutto sells for like a you know per pig what you make and all you got to do is feed them acorns and things like that We we gotta get ourselves about 300 hogs and add them to our cow situation and as a portfolio and make a whole lot of money and we can get acorns which is what you feed them we finish them on acorns from california super cheap they're trying to get rid of them so they do all that get the hogs feed them acorns make these beautiful product cut them all up and then they they have to air dry or age for about four weeks. So they hang them in the forest on private lands. They're private land. And they hang big front shoulders and bat, bat the back uh, quarters in the forest to air dry. Right. This is the Rocky Mountain Front. They're hanging ham all through the forest. It's a grizzly bear country, but grizzly bears are evenly distributed, 20,000 acres, 25,000 acres, group of grizzly bear territory, home range, something like that. Everything goes pretty good for about a week or so. One morning they walk out and there's nine grizzly bears in their forest having a great time with those hams. All right. Call up FWP. we got a grizzly problem here. And they go, what? So I got nine grizzly bears eating my stuff. So, well, do you have a fence around that? No. Why should I have to fence that? That's the public's wildlife. You're mismanaging them. We need to knock down the overall population of bears. This is untenable for me. It's costing me a lot of money. All right. So you hear that story and go, where do I fall in this equation? How do I think about that? Move it over to where we're working. You have some ranchers. They've moved into definitely elk habitat, kind of like grizzly bear habitat, elk habitat. And they get along with cows, are just fine and all that. But they've been buying hay on the open market, you know, big one-ton round bales. They decide to produce their own. So they plow in about 300 acres of alfalfa in the middle of native grassland habitat that's been out there for thousands of years in the middle of elk country. Elk might be evenly distributed all over the landscape. Long about August, you go just about two more weeks and that alfalfa is looking great. It's like electric green neon out there. In about two more weeks, I'm gonna cut this and we'll have some nice bales and relatively cheap, except for the diesel fuel, to cut it and roll it. And they go out there just two weeks before they're gonna cut it and there's 300 elk in their alfalfa field. They call up FWP and say, they're eating me out of house and home, you got to lower these quotas, this is ridiculous. There's, there's way too many elk out here. And if WP says, you got a fence around it, no. Why, why should I have to have, do that as a cost of doing business, to have that fence around that? You're mismanaging the elk, and that is the crux. Those conversations actually go on. There's elk in my alfalfa fields. Push those animals down so that they'll leave me alone and stop costing me so much money. And FWP will say, "How about some cost share? How about we could help you fence that out? We can't pay for everything because we're kind of we don't have much money right now, much budget. But we could bring you some materials and maybe even help you a little bit, but you you pay for half, we'll pay for half. Why should I have to pay for wildlife? It's the public's wildlife. You're mismanaging it. Get them out of here. And I want the quotas. And then he calls the calls the senator to the commission, back to the people." The FWP in Glasgow and said lower those quotas.
4: And a lot of times the FWP will probably come in there and say, Well, why don't you let people on there to hunt them? That's a pretty good way to get elk to run away is to let people shoot at them.
1: At least for a little while. Second week of August, a little tough if you have a shoulder season that backs up into that when they really hit things hard. Yeah, when they are keeping away from your haystacks and things like that. But anybody who might hear this story, it's a cultural thing. There's no right or wrong. So some people might say, Well, what Sean just said it's exactly right. That rancher with the grizzly bears is in a world that hurt, FWP should take care of that. Or the rancher with the alfalfa field, FWP should take care of that. It's exactly right. It's the public's wildlife being mismanaged. Other people, I don't know, You got some of you guys maybe, I don't know what you're thinking, would say, you know, that is a cost of doing business. If you're going to put an unnatural thing out in the middle of that country, be it hams or bright green alfalfa, It's your responsibility to fail and set out because those elk are trailing from 15 miles away to come hit your stack, right? Whether it's rolled up or veiled or whatever else. And FWP goes, I wish we had more money because when the conversation, I'm in a lot of conversations with the ranchers, it gets down. It's not that they don't like elk. They actually like elk. A lot of them are bow hunters. It's not about the species. It's about what they do to their operation. It's finance, which is a good news for, I think, for you guys because if you can come up with more money, Connecting the docs here. If we can come up with a whole bunch more money and we can fence out, help that rancher and fence out that field, they will quick complain to the FWP. The calls from the legislature and the commission stop and populations can go up and you will have lots more elk out there. A lot more elk out there. All it is is finding some money. What we have found, for instance, this is the important thing. Uh, we have found, for instance, with our Wild Sky program where ranchers are get paid to be more wildlife friendly wildlife tolerant, you should say, everything, by the way, wolves, cougars, elk, whatever it might be, we pay them money for that, substantial money, on top of what they sell to in the commodity market, so it's an extra bonus, and that money is enough to tip the behavior in the direction of being more wildlife friendly. That's one example. So I think there are a number of things that hunters could do to conjure up some more money, if you want to hear them. I got six ideas for that. And if we can get more money into the game, you can get those ranchers feeling better, Those quotas will go up, and you're going to see a lot more robust populations out there. Hit me with the top three. Top three? Yeah.
0: This is ways hunters could get more money to create more wildlife-friendly. Sean Garrity's top three ways in which hunters could pump more money to make a more wildlife-friendly habitat regime out there in the united states of america
1: some <coughs> equaling yeah. more, equalling more wildlife equaling more wildlife, so that you can hunt it you can chase it around yeah and have more fun yeah, you, got, every, you got my attention everybody wins well the really big ones i think there was the what was the what was the act in 1936 with the with the pitman Pittman robertson it? thank
0: That's you Wildlife restoration act
1: and all they did was charge on they they put tax on guns right and ammunition
0: and ammunition and then the one there's one that followed up later on fishing equipment
1: i think if you actually lobbied i'm guessing backcountry or somebody has lobbyists and lobbied together in montana and said we want to do something like that we want to tax all kinds of stuff
0: oh yeah man we're all over this they won't do it so
1: (laughs) next the backpack tax next idea so yeah i would just say that comes up constantly we we want to we want to actually be taxed more be really organized, not just one group, but a whole, a whole bunch of people. Hammer on this. Hire some lobbyists until you finally get it through. Uh, took three tries, I think, three runs at the legislature to get rid of cyanide heap leach mining. Takes a while. Yeah. You got you to stay on it. Don't, okay. get, don't give up. Yeah,
0: so we would tax backpacks, skis, birding equipment. Everything. Because, yeah, guns and ammo are taxed 13 Well, Well, the manufacturers are paying 13%.
6: Everything. But there's been some other proposals, too, like specific to a species. Like, okay, well, what if we lobbied for... Uh, an additional dollar specific to getting bison back on the Yeah. Just
1: buy a like license that. plate and it'll go to it yeah. or whatever. If you can go up against industry and get cyanide heap leach mining out of Montana, you guys can do this. If you're organized and persistent as hell. Okay. Only if you persist, no, just throw, oh, we tried once, we give it up. Go, do on, we hammer? Go. On. We hammer on this all the time. I love right. the idea of a
0: backpack tag.
1: Got to do that. Do Next that. Next one that's is tomorrow.
0: Yanni, this, no, make a note of that.
1: <laughs> Here's another one. This, this on is interesting is you got to broaden out and let other people help. So, I know a lot of biologists, game biologists from FWP, of course, could be in the business who work with them. Uh, Jeff Hagner actually used to work for APR, who used to be head of Wildlife, and Parks. so he and I spent lots and lots and lots of hours on airplanes and cars and things like that. For him, it was a, you know we do, a job after being with FWP. I talked about he said a lot of interesting anecdotes every time, so why don't we raise hunting fees to get more money? Or are there other ways to get more money because the revenue is going down? No, they just doubled.
0: They, I mean, not too long ago, they doubled non resident fees.
1: Right. But I mean, resident. I'm talking residents. And I, so they said, we came up with this wildlife stamp idea. We went on the road and said, how about wildlife stamp where we can get people that we get all these artists to do these cool stamps, like a duck stamp, charge people who don't hunt, but they'll buy the stamps for 12 bucks a piece because they're done by world class artists and yeah. get the whole stamp. He said, everywhere we went, particularly in Livingston, that got shouted down by hunters. I said, why would they not want that? It's more money to manage game and make things work better at all go into game management. He said, you know what people said? And it was hunting guides and hunters. And the loudest, most volatile one was over in Livingston one night. He said, we just backed off. Hunters said, we don't want anybody else at the table besides hunters deciding what happens with Montana wildlife. We'd, and what a great idea to get lots of money for people who aren't going to compete with you and try to shoot that deer, they just want to go out and look at birds, and they're glad to buy a stamp so they can help, so they can have more grassland birds and whatever else. I think hunters chase away other people because you want to own the discussion. That's a big mistake, I think. There's lots of people in Montana. Wildlife viewing is on a dramatic increase, decades-long increase. There's a lot of money in those people's pockets, and you're leaving it on the table. Here's the next one. another one. With sports. So, I don't know if any of you golf or ski at Bridger Bowl or whatever I'm else. I'm an anti golf. Definitely no golfing. <laughs> <laughs> I don't golf either. Okay, let's not go with that.
0: I'm joking. I'm not anti golf. My father was a golfer.
1: So, anybody downhill ski ever, you're, hunting is not keeping up with the increase in price of sports. I bought my first season pass in 1978 at Bridger Bowl. I think it was $110. Seemed like a king's ransom at the time. Almost killed me to pay that much money. I mean, that was. Uh, uh, didn't leave me any money for gas to go. So it was a bad move. Had to hitchhike or, you know, get rides up there in college. And now let's see at Bridger bowl. I think a season pass is 800 bucks. If you want to go skiing one day, I think it's $59 for one day. And you can get a 10 pass thing for 510 bucks. Take so just look at other sports. Like golfing for three hours, that'll cost you forty bucks for one time for three hours. Skiing one time from nine thirty until four o'clock in the afternoon, fifty nine bucks. So you can get an elk hunting season pass, ten bucks for your general tag, and what's the elk tag now? Fifteen dollars. No, it's fifteen.
3: It? It's I always buy it. So in I, I always yeah. buy the sportsman's <laughs> it is what pack. Okay, anyway,
1: so you can go so and like, like one hundred twenty twenty four? Twenty four. Yeah. yeah. So if you want to go elk hunting in montana for gosh sakes one of the best places in the world you want to go elk hunting in montana 10 bucks for your general tag and it, it's 10 dollars. so 20 bucks
0: 600 for non-resident
1: 800, 800. i'm just 800, talking about, forget that yeah. not on residents you guys sitting right here right you get a season pass to hunt elk in montana for four straight months for 20 bucks yeah and fwp says every time we try to raise it people come absolutely unglued so and yeah so.
0: you'll never you'll never hear okay okay so I, think, I know you're like throwing out like general recommendations for general folks i don't think that i mean
1: i think for general we folks, did how long did it take you're like, not
0: paying up sam you probably know uh, how long was the duck stamp set at 15 bucks oh i mean like 40 50 years they didn't, they didn't even get it adjusted yeah. for inflation when it yeah came no no so, so I, yeah, I, you're right, a I think forever. the
1: hunters can't – come so, you know, if you can't – so if you can't do it – We here. want it all, man. If you can't – yeah, we want it not to pay. <laughs> and I don't care if those dumb skiers pay that much or those golfers or boaters or anybody else. We don't want our tags going up. And I hear I, – I actually argue, you know, on a chairlift with people. Someone who's got an $800 ski tag saying, if I have to pay twice what I'm paying now, I'm done. I can't hunt. I say, yeah, but that bottle of High West whiskey cost you 45 bucks. Yeah, and that mossy oak stretchy thing you just showed me the other day that was 90 bucks mm-hmm. let's just take all the stuff out of your car and put you in pick to strip you too you're standing there naked for a few minutes i want to price everything that you use to hunt and you can't pay 45 bucks for an elk tag
0: yeah i think if, so. i think a couple year ones are things that people are already talking about or, but they're not doing it yeah there are things that people are already talking about there's a uh, robust conversation you know i i i like them there's a lot of movement there the one i really agree with you on, i think that the the, the yeah, yeah i think the people are really resistant understanding like knowing where the money goes and right. the good that it does i think there's an irrational resistance to paying a fair price for the
1: opportunity so fdp's revenues they're 59 million dollars a year that they get for game stuff they do other stuff fishing but 59 million bucks a year If you get that to 100 million bucks, or 120 million bucks, or 150 million bucks, now we're going to start to get a lot more access and a lot more animals. That's the most point to pay those ranchers to fence that stuff out. They're calm more wildlife, but it gets down to money, I believe. So, if the easiest thing, if none of this stuff because legislation would change and all that kind of stuff, hunting groups could also get together. FWP has an FWP foundation. There's nothing in it. It might have almost nothing in it. If you guys all got together, form some organization, and you just raised money for the FWP Foundation, just, just like APR, money straight into that, raise three, four million bucks a year. That's a lot of fences around alfalfa fields. That makes a lot of ranchers happy. That gets the FWP, region six, region four, off the hook. No more screaming at them. You got too many elk here or bears eating my prosciutto or whatever else. Now I'm happy I'm cool because I'm a hunter too if I'm a rancher. A lot of them are. And now all of a sudden those quotas can go up. Just give... just Today, when I leave, write a check to the F2B Foundation. You don't have to ask anybody, no change of Congress or laws or anything like that. Just give them the money, but earmark it for that. I want it for wildlife damage. I want it to be helped for wildlife damage and fill that bucket up. Fundraising is hard, but you you guys, if you got, with, your, with Steve's reach, that mouthpiece, the reach that he has and just say, I want you guys, just like I want you to buy Schnee's boots or I want you to buy my cookbook or whatever else oh and by the way you guys do not go to sleep tonight until you write a check to the fwp foundation well
0: it's big damn country and montana's just one state you're talking to a lot of hunters here though yeah what if everybody floating around what if everybody wrote 50
1: (laughs) bucks 50 bucks every guide everybody wrote 50 bucks you'd get millions yeah or buy
0: buy three duck stamps
1: whatever it is but you guys ought to be jamming for millions into that foundation but you say to the foundation head i want this earmarked only for wildlife damage uh mitigation and pretty soon we'll have wildlife coming out of our ears you guys can control it
0: you know we do a thing here called hot tip offs yeah that's your hot tip is
1: it yeah what do you think of it steve i
0: love it man i wish everybody would give uh, thousands of dollars tomorrow yeah to their i wish they would buy 10 duck stamps and give thousands tomorrow to their fish and game agency yeah
2: but
6: that's I don't not w-
0: I don't not wish they would do it. <laughs> that's a good point though, right? It's like in the
6: enclosed circles, I, I kind of spin this argument different ways, but um, you know, hunters is a group, that's just, uh. you can pick any group and there's some nasty examples out there too, but hunters are a, can be a diverse group and there's plenty of hunters in this bell curve that are spending a lot of money, a lot more money, um, then that 50 bucks every single year to a lot of different groups, right. Trying to get this ball rolling and, right. and, and keep it going. Right. So yeah, man, there's, there's plenty of folks within our, our ranks that are doing the bare minimum. And a long time ago we said, you know, buying your duck stamp and your hunting and conservation license is, is just not enough anymore. It used to be, you know, the, the price of admission, but.
1: In the 1930s down, it was. Right? But yeah. Price. Right it's beyond the, the, bare the minimum, game went now. up.
0: yeah yeah Absolutely. just like just but like there's you're, you're I'm, I'm looking to wrap her up i'm here. not making but, her but there's an a, excuse yes but there's also like big historical stuff uh you know the 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 hunters that we grow up dreaming about okay that we tell the narratives of and talk about john coulter You mentioned the guy that, you know, the guy that was in charge, one of the guys that was in charge of hunting game to supply the Lewis and Clark expedition was a fella by the name of John Coulter. Um, We all know Daniel Boone, um, Davy Crockett, Jed Smith, okay? Are sort of the the legacy that has shaped the identity of American hunters were guys that didn't pay to go out and be in the woods. They got paid to go out and be in the woods. So there's like, you you, you know, there's this. There's this this thing that it's like you have the right to go out and extract said resources without a lot of um, pushback and red tape, and there's people that have an expectation about that, and I think that those expectations need to get up to speed. I I agree. But there is a there's a way if you want to look at be like where did our mind frame come from that that's mine I should be allowed to go out and get it. Uh, you don't need to. It's not hard to understand how we came to view it that way. So when, you when the something country
6: was founded on it, when <laughs> something
0: has a real long track record, like a mentality that has a long track record, it's difficult to spin it. And, and people did a big move toward changing it, and you know, during the Franklin Roosevelt administration with the Wildlife Restoration Act, um, when we had to, you know, people were like had to start doing a duck stamp. That's a big step. People had to start using non-toxic shot to hunt waterfowl. Like, oh, my God, I'd rather quit duck hunting than do that. Right? So you have people go not kicking and screaming into the future, but kicking and screaming into the present, man. I mean, it's, like, hard. So, But anyone that's involved in wildlife policy in any kind of serious way and anyone that's involved in hunting and fishing in America in any kind of serious way realizes and really better realize that fun that wildlife costs money it's here because we've made it's not here by accident it used to be here by accident and it was here despite all of our best efforts to remove it now it's here for the simple reason that we've decided that it's valuable and that we're going to make sacrifices to have it be on the ground and stru- it's like, and a structure yeah.
1: a structure was put around it like hunting seasons, yeah, things like that. It's here because
0: we decided to have it be here.
1: And what we've got missed, I think you're on a very good track. You're important track. One thing that got missed, kind of snuck up on people, like a ski resort. When I first started skiing in the '70s at Bridger Bowl, why why the tags keep going or the or the prices keep going up? Well, you look at the infrastructure that's there to create a good experience for you. From uh, keeping the ski patrol warm with a little hut, those chairlifts, obviously, safety things, uh, people, all that kind of stuff. Well, when we decided to put that structure around FWP and say there's seasons on hunting so we don't eradicate everything anymore, and somebody has to maintain that structure, Fish, Wildlife, and Parks has nearly 700 employees. That's game wardens and trucks and laptops and radios and gas and buildings, all that stuff, and going out there and buying easements and buying property. That's a huge infrastructure, expensive infrastructure there so that you can have a great hunt they're out there while we're sitting here drinking coffee they're out there busting their ass arresting somebody trying to open this closing a gate whatever doing a talk slideshow
0: doing disease research but what,
1: these are good people at fwp and they are broke because people go i shouldn't have to pay for hunting 10 bucks you raise it 12 bucks can't do it while we load our bourbon and our guns in our fifty thousand dollar truck i don't i shouldn't have to pay for it. it's a right it's a god-given right well it's not a god-given right to ski a bridge or bowl for free. Uh, there's a huge cost. We live in a capitalist society. Hunters need to pay up, and we'll, everybody will be happy. It's not that much money compared to what you got on your body when you're archery hunting. Yeah, you just take the cost of your polypro, maybe your boots and one sock. That's all you got to give.
5: I feel like um, you know that I take that point well, but at the same time, I really believe the FWP. Should really hold other users accountable too, in terms of like they really try. giving back. They try.
1: They try with a stamp. I get hunters it. Hunters shout them down.
5: I know it, but I'd well, oh, like hunters to see. won't
0: shout them down if they want to do like a, um, a ski tax. <laughs> 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 I, I could, pro- I'll make yeah. you a personal guarantee. Yeah. If they want to impose a, a 13 to 14 percent tax on ski equipment in order to um, fund yeah. wildlife in America, yeah, I, I, I can promise you, you won't hear a lot of gripe from us.
3: But that's not true. We've had this discussion. It is true yeah, that, uh, hunter's that hunters ski, are man. no, 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 no. It's true that hunters are are like the way that it is now at the table, and there yeah. aren't a lot of other voices.
0: Well, it just they should give the money, but have no input. That's all, I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> all right, looking to wrap her up. Uh, I appreciate the call out. Yeah? I, re- I Oh, I. Really I
1: don't do. mean. I'm not trying to be obnoxious. No, so
3: no, no, trying. no, no. Some people will obviously take it that way and oh, will yeah. be offended.
0: I'll hear about. I, it. I appreciate. Oh it. yeah, people are always offended by everything. Someone's offended by us <laughs> trying to sell our book. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a public service, <laughs> dude. What are yeah. you, you gonna say? Someone's always offended. That,
3: that, that was it. Just yeah. no. It, it's great. I appreciate hearing that from the from the outside. Not really from the outside. I mean, you're, I, I consider you one of us. But uh, I think we need to be doing more of that.
1: Got to work together, and the solutions are the solution. It's not do. It's not. It's not undo. I mean, when people say, "How did in the world? Do you think you could take on this project from scratch? A private enterprise to raise seven hundred million dollars and build this whole thing?" He's got to get organized and execute over a very long period of time. Can't just give up because he hit a few frustrating bumps. So that's why well, you guys can do it.
0: Yeah. Well, we've done an extraordinary amount of work yeah. on behalf of American wildlife.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Uh, and just, you know, we should do a lot better work going forward. Thank you very much. Tough questions. You, na- you did some of them. You dodged a couple. Did I dodge them? Yeah, a little bit, but it was good. <laughs> it was good. I liked it. Because you know what? It wasn't a dodge. You just don't know
1: i understand some stuff i don't i know i the older i get you guys are you're young you the older you get the less certain you are about a lot of stuff
0: yeah can i, get, I
1: give you a, you said can i give you a concluder
0: oh you're allowed to have a concluder <laughs> i'm not gonna let anyone else have a concluder i had looked at i'm up. not gonna take a concluder but i'll let you have a concluder
1: hate to steal you guys concluders. here's what i like people to take away they probably even you guys might have another thousand questions i'm glad to come back anytime uh, to try to answer them, something, something that didn't sound quite right. Say we got to get back in here and straighten this out. Whatever it was, you know. Glad to do it. Please do. People listening, what I'd like you to take away is you can count on us to keep going. So we've done twenty twenty nine property acquisitions. We're adding about thirty five thousand acres a year to our model. We will work our butts off to keep this thing going and keep adding more wildlife habitat. We'll work really hard to take that habitat and move it into something that is going to support a huge amount of wildlife, but also change the baseline for which what is normal today in Montana, and when you come out, you'll see less fences, you'll see less take out, uh, keep out signs, more signs saying, welcome to Prairie, American Prairie Reserve on our private land, and we want to make things like corner hopping and all that kind of stuff moot, because the fence isn't even there. We've already done that. We can show you in thousands and th- tens of thousands of acres where we've already done that, where it's a, it's a you don't even have to say that. You just walk right across our private, checker, the whole world of checkerboard goes away because you can't see it anymore, all right? But um, we'll also put in infrastructure. We're just finishing our second, really big campground right on 191, There's where hun- it, it'll be open in the spring, but there's hundreds and other. So we'll put in campgrounds, 15 bucks a night. If you think that's exorbitant, you can camp on the BLM right next door for free, gorilla camp. We're doing a 200-mile-wide hut-to-hut system, one of the biggest hut systems in North America. There's hunters using those huts right now, based out of the PN. We're moving west to east all the way across towards the Fort Peck Dam. So we'll put in things for you. We'll buy the land. We'll remodel the land. We'll work on wildlife populations. We'll put in places for you to stay and make it easy for you to move about. Try to take it back in some ways to the old days. But you guys can help us mostly by helping... Barking up the wrong tree by hammering on us for access. All I can say is don't worry about it. Come talk to me. Come talk to anybody, our CEO, Ali Fox. Just ask, are you guys really serious about public access? And then, once you feel good about that, help us build wildlife populations. And you can do that by some ideas we just talked about in the last half hour. The issue is the populations. It's because everybody's chasing around tiny little fragments of what used to be there. If we can grow that up big, everybody's going to win. But you got to help the ranchers. They're working on three percent margins. They need some help. No matter what you think, whether they should share the cost or whatever else, just let's just help them. Huh, we'll get more wildlife. So that's what I'd say. We'll keep working.
0: All right. Yet the wait. Save
1: your concluders.
3: Oh. I had a good one.
1: I did. Too. All right, Yanni, go ahead. <laughs> if you really, if you really. I want <laughs> I want to hear Yanni's. I'm pushing. And Sammy, I'm pushing APR, and
3: I feel like you know. Well, like, going to push it? Like he was saying about what the Bisons, like the farther away you are from them, that like the, I, I'm anxious about bison. I don't even because I don't know that much about them. You know, I just know what's on the park. So the same thing with APR. It's like people need to go up there and check it out. Like you said, it's wide open right now. Go check it out and go see what's going on out there. There's hunting opportunities up there now. We don't need to talk about what they are. Go online and go check it out. And I think a lot less people would be scared of the whole thing if they just probably took a drive up through beautiful Montana and go and check it out, right? In fact,
1: come hunt. Right now today as we're sitting here, there's people out in the snow hunting bison. There you go. Yes. Go, go hunt some bison. <laughs>
0: Sam? Yeah.
4: Thanks. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say that my dad thinks that you already have your 10,000 uh, bison floor there Uh not too long ago he walked out of the tent in the morning and goes sam come look there's thousands of bison (laughs) i'm like what are you talking about like i think they only have like a thousand bison (laughs) and and i come out and it's you know it's that grainy first light kind of
0: dawn where were you you're on you're on on yeah don't say okay yeah
4: uh yeah and and i go well yeah i see those those three that are right up there in the foreground he's like don't you see all those other ones i was like that was, that's sagebrush. <laughs> no, but what but what, I, what I wanted to say was that uh, first time I went out in that, that country, I was reading Undaunted Courage by Stephen Ambrose, a biography of Meriwether Lewis. And and talking about this area, uh, Stephen Ambrose said that it is the, the area that's least changed since Lewis saw it. And that was just so inspiring to me in that moment because I was like six, seven miles back in hiking, chasing around elk um and it's just magnificent country and it, it it always uh plays with my imagination to to think about what it looked like you know that 200 years ago when they saw it and how cool it would be to have that kind of population level again for wildlife someday
1: good it's great glad you're getting out there we're trying to get people to see it you know, it's a long ways and so many people who have questions actually never been there a lot of montanas have never even seen it
0: no, so. Kelly, you might as well wedge one in. <laughs> <laughs> um, boy, I've talked a lot of, about a lot of good
6: stuff. Got to have you back. Glad to come back. Yeah. I uh, definitely need
0: to make a field trip. That's it, that's all I got. All right, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Telling you what, decked is a game changer. Decked has completely changed how I load, organize my truck. All my stuff that I want is always in there, out of my way, and secure. It's perfect. If you own a pickup truck that you use, you know, like a truck, the decked drawer system gives you weatherproof storage for all your gear. You can lock it up too. You keep your tools and gear organized, job site or out in the field. Go to deck.com slash meat eater to receive free shipping. Go to decked.com slash meat eater and get yourself some free shipping.